It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Now it's time for a brief history of the United States of America. Hi, boys and girls. Ready to get started? Once upon a time, there were these people in Europe called pilgrims, and they were afraid of being persecuted. So they all got in a boat and sailed to the New World where they wouldn't have to be scared ever again. Oh, I'm so relaxed. Ooh, I feel so much safer. But as soon as they arrived, they were greeted by savages, and they got scared all over again. So they killed them all. Now, you'd think wiping out a race of people would calm them down, but no. Instead, they started getting frightened of each other. So they burned witches. In 1775, they started killing the British so they could be free. And it worked. But they still didn't feel safe. So they passed a Second Amendment which said every white man could keep his gun. I loves my gun. Loves my gun. Which brings us to the genius idea of slavery. You see, boys and girls, the white people back then were also afraid of doing any work. So they went to Africa, kidnapped thousands of black people, brought them back to America, and forced them to work very hard for no money. And I don't mean no money like I work at Walmart and make no money. I mean zero dollars, nothing, not a zip. Doing it that way made the USA the richest country in the world. So did having all that money and free help calm the white people down? No way. They got even more afraid. That's because after 200 years of slavery, the black people now outnumbered the white people in many parts of the South. Well, you can pretty much guess what came next. The slaves started rebelling. There were uprisings. An old master's head got chopped off. And when white people heard of this, they were freaking out and going, Oh, no, hell. Don't kill me, big black man. Well, just in the nick of time came Samuel Coe, who in 1836 invented the first weapon ever that could be fired over and over without having to reload. And all the Southerners were like, yee But it was too late. The North soon won the Civil War and the slaves were freed. Yep, they were free now to go chop all the old master's heads off. And everybody was like, oh no, we're gonna die. But the freed slaves took no revenge. They just wanted to live in peace. But you couldn't convince the white people of this. So they formed the Ku Klux Klan. And 
1871, the same year the Klan became an illegal terrorist organization, another group was founded, the National Rifle Association. Soon, politicians passed one of the first gun laws, making it illegal for any black person to own one. It was a great year for America, the KKK and the NRA. Of course, they had nothing to do with each other, and this was just a coincidence. One group legally promoted responsible gun ownership, and the other group shot and lynched black people. And that's the way it was all the way to 1955, when a black woman broke the law by refusing to move to the back of the bus. White people just couldn't believe it. Huh? Why won't they move? What's going on? Man, all hell broke loose. Black people everywhere started demanding their rights, and white people had a major freaky field meltdown. And they were all like, run away, run away. And they did. They all ran flee into the suburbs where it was all white and safe and clean. And they went out and bought a quarter of a billion guns and put locks on the doors, alarms in the houses, and gates around the neighborhoods. And finally, they were all safe and secure and snug as a bug. And everyone lived happily ever after. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, July 12, 2019. So I have been told uh, this is our book club uh, second study session on Gavin DeBecker's The Gift of Fear. Uh, We're picking up on chapter three, the audio segment that you heard at the beginning. uh, That was a snippet from Michael Moore's 2002 documentary, uh, Bowling for Columbine. Uh, In that film, there are many points where they address this constant fear and the marketing of fear on people thinking that something is going to happen to them, particularly white people. That's one of the big points uh, of the project, unless I was misinformed. And I thought that that little segment uh, gets to much of the thoughts, concerns that I have, uh, major thought really, uh, that I have about this book and particularly why it's so uh, successful. Uh, White people, when they talk about fear, even in the context of racism, white supremacy, and all of the destruction that they wreak on the planet and all of the power that they have, especially more power than non-white people, they talk about being afraid on a regular basis, threats to them on a regular uh, basis. Often, their alleged fear is given as justification for them terrorizing and abusing other black people, regular basis. Uh, But to have all of this talk about fear and even listening to your fear and yes, the gift of fear, accept that. And, you know, recognize when you're feeling uneasy frequently, all of this is directed at black people. Uh, And that's just something that I keep in mind as I'm uh, reading uh, this text uh, would encourage other folks to be mindful of that as we're reading. You can let me know if that makes sense or not and see if even elements of that uh, appear directly, literally, Uh, As we are reading, we're so early in the book, I've already said the political correctness concept will be mentioned. With that, uh, an additional footnote, I didn't know a whole lot about Gavin DeBecker, and I'm still not an expert before we started reading the text. uh, But I read that Mr. DeBecker, he does, I guess, celebrity work. Uh, He's worked for Michael J. Fox, Cher, a lot of other really known folks. Uh, One of them includes Mr. Bill Cosby. 
Uh, it's reported in the L.A. Times and many other outlets, apparently, that Mr. Cosby uh, hired Gavin De Becker in 1997 after his son Ennis was murdered. I think that's a cowbell. Uh, but they hired him to get more information about the murder uh, and to uh, detect uh, potential threats against the family. But I thought that was interesting as well. Folks can research about that online if you are so interested. Uh, with that, we will get started. Context of white supremacy. This is audio segment number one of Gavin De Becker's The Gift of Fear. Chapter 3. The Academy of Prediction. I am capable of what every other human is capable of. This is one of the great lessons of war and life. Maya Angelou. Before I was 13, I saw a man shot. I saw another beaten and kicked to unconsciousness. I saw a friend struck near lethally in the face and head with a steel rod. I saw my mother become a heroin addict, I saw my sister beaten, and I was myself a veteran of beatings that had been going on for more than half my life. The stakes of my predictions back then were just as high as they are today. Life and death, and I viewed it as my responsibility to be sure we all got through those years alive. We didn't, and for a long while I viewed that as my responsibility too. But my point in telling you all this is not about me. It is about you. It is about you because, though triggered by different occurrences, you felt the exact same emotions that I felt. While some were painful and some were frightening, no experience of mine had any more impact on me than those of yours that had the greatest impact on you. People sometimes say they cannot imagine what a given experience must have been like but you can imagine every human feeling. And as you'll see, it's that ability that makes you an expert at predicting what others will do. You want to know how to spot violently inclined people, how to be safe in the presence of danger. Well, since you know all about human beings, this expedition begins and ends in familiar territory. You have been attending your academy for years, and to pick up your diploma in predicting violence there is just one truth you must accept, that there is no mystery of human behavior that cannot be solved inside your head or your heart. Nicholas Humphrey of Cambridge University explains that evolution gave us introspection specifically so we could model other human beings and therefore predict their behavior. To succeed at this, we have to be what Humphrey calls natural psychologists, we have to know, he says, what it's like to be human. Way back when she was still anonymous, I assisted a young prosecutor named Marcia Clark on her brilliant prosecution of assassin Robert Bardo. Bardo had killed actress Rebecca Schaefer, and Clark sent him to prison for life. When I interviewed him there, his relative normalcy took me out of the safe realm of us and them, experts and assassins, and into the world of our shared humanness. It may be unwelcome news, but you and I and Bardo have much more in common than we have in contrast. Distinguished psychiatrist Carl Menninger has said, I don't believe in such a thing as the criminal mind. Everyone's mind is criminal. We're all capable of criminal fantasies and thoughts. Two of history's great minds, Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud, went even further. 
In an extraordinary correspondence, they explored the topic of human violence. Einstein's letter concluded that man has in him the need to hate and destroy. In his reply, Freud agreed unreservedly, adding that human instincts could be divided into two categories, those which seek to preserve and unite and those which seek to destroy and kill. He wrote that the phenomenon of life evolves from their acting together and against each other. Proving the opinions of Einstein and Freud is the fact that violence and homicide occur in all cultures. In their book on the origins of violence, Demonic Males, Richard Wrangham and Dale Peterson say that modern humans are the dazed survivors of a continuous five-million-year habit of lethal aggression. Those scientific explorers who set out to find communities that would disprove man's universal violence all came home disappointed. South Pacific Islanders were incorrectly romanticized as nonviolent in Margaret Mead's coming of age in Samoa. The Fijians, correctly perceived today as the friendliest people in the world, were not that long ago among humanity's most violent. The Kung of the Kalahari were called the harmless people in a book by the same title. But Melvin Connor, whose search for the answers took him more than once to study hunter-gatherers in Africa, concluded that, again and again, ethnographers have discovered Eden in the outback, only to have the discovery foiled by better data. Though we live in space-age times, we still have Stone Age minds. We are competitive and territorial and violent, just like our simian ancestors. There are people who insist this isn't so, who insist that they could never kill anyone. But they invariably add a telling caveat. Unless, of course, a person tried to harm someone I love. So the resource of violence is in everyone. All that changes is our view of the justification. Studying and interviewing those who use violence to reach their goals, I long ago learned that I must find in them some part of myself and, more disturbingly at times, find in myself some part of them. There must be a place to hook the line before I drop down into the dark mind of some dark mind. There must be something familiar to hold on to. A man kills a cow with an axe cuts open the carcass, and then climbs inside to see what it feels like. Later, he uses the axe to kill his eight-year-old stepbrother. Another man murders his parents by shooting out their eyes with a shotgun. We use the word inhuman to describe these murderers, but I know them both, and they are not inhuman. They're precisely human. I know many other people like them. I know their parents and the parents of their victims. Their violent acts were repugnant, to be sure but not inhuman. When a bank robber shoots a security guard, we all understand why. But with aberrant killers, people resist the concept of a shared humanness. That's because us and them is far more comfortable. In my work, I don't have that luxury. The stakes of some predictions require that I intimately recognize and accept what I observe in others, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they might do, no matter where it takes me in myself. There may be a time in your life when you too won't have the luxury of saying you don't recognize someone's sinister intent. Your survival may depend on your recognizing it. Though anthropologists 
have long focused on the distinctions between people. It's recognizing the sameness that allows us to most accurately predict violence. Of course, accepting someone's humanness doesn't mean excusing his behavior. This lesson is probably starkest when you spend time with the world's most violent and dangerous people, the ones you might call monsters, the ones who committed acts you might think you couldn't have imagined. Many of them are locked up at a Tascadero State Hospital in California. I founded and fund a program there called Patient Pets, which allows patients to care for small animals. Many of these men will be locked up for life without visitors, and a mouse or bird might be all they have. I recall the way patients reacted to the death of a particular guinea pig, who had been one of the first pets in the program. When they noticed the old animal was sick, they wanted to find a way to keep her from dying, though most knew that wasn't possible. The program's coordinator, Jane Middlebrook, sent me this report. One patient, Oliver, made it his job to be sure the ailing animal had everything she needed. Oliver asked to keep her in his room so she won't be alone at night just in case she decides to die then. Eventually, the old guinea pig was unable to move and her breathing was labored. Oliver gathered several patients in my office and the guinea pig died in his arms surrounded by an unlikely group of mourners. There was not a dry eye in the ward as the patients said their goodbyes and silently left the office. I have often shared with you the effects these events have on the patients, some of whom, moved by the death of one of the animals, cried for the first time about the harms they had committed on others. Now I want to share some of my own feelings. As I sat in my office watching the patients, all felons, many guilty of brutal crimes, most lost in a variety of addictions, you choose, mental illness, pick one, and regarded as the bottom of the barrel, I saw a glimmer of compassion, a bit of emotion, and the glimpse of humanity that society believes these men lack, and in most situations they do. It's true that the majority of these men are exactly where they belong. To unleash them on society would be unthinkable. But we cannot disregard their humanness because if we do, I believe we become less human in the process. So even in a gathering of aberrant murderers, there is something of you and me. When we accept this, we're more likely to recognize the rapist who tries to con his way into our home, the child molester who applies to be a babysitter, the spousal killer at the office, the assassin in the crowd. When we accept that violence is committed by people, who look and act like people, we silence the voice of denial, the voice that whispers, this guy doesn't look like a killer. Our judgment may classify a person as either harmless or sinister, but survival is better served by our perception. Judgment results in a label, like calling Robert Bardo a monster and leaving it at that. Such labels allow people to comfortably think it's all figured out. The labels also draw a bold line between that wacko and us, but perception carries you much further. Scientists, after all, don't observe a bird that destroys its own eggs and say, well, that never happens, this is just a monster. Rather, they correctly conclude that if this bird did it, others might, and that there must be some purpose in nature, some cause, some predictability.
People who commit terrible violences choose their acts from among many options. I don't have to provide a list of horrors to demonstrate this. You can find the proof in your own mind. Imagine what you believe is the worst thing anyone might ever do to another human being. Imagine something worse than anything you've ever seen in a movie or read about or heard about. Imagine something original. Pause in your reading and conjure this awful thing. Now, by virtue of the fact that you could conceive it, rest assured it has likely been done to someone. Because everything that can be done by a human being to another human being has been done. Acts of extraordinary horror and violence happen, and we cannot learn why they happen by looking at rare behavior as if it is something outside ourselves. That idea you just conjured was in you, and thus it is part of us. To really work toward prediction and prevention, we must accept that these acts are done by people included in the we of humanity, not by interlopers who somehow sneaked in. One evening a few years ago, legendary FBI behavioral scientist Robert Ressler, the man who coined the term serial killer, visited my home for dinner. Ressler wrote the book, Whoever Fights Monsters, the title of which comes from a Nietzsche quote I have often considered. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. For when you look long into an abyss, the abyss also looks into you. Having just read an advanced copy of The Silence of the Lambs, I was discussing its fictional, I thought, character who killed young women to harvest their skin for a woman's suit. Wrestler matter-of-factly responded, Oh, the Ed Gein case. And he described a man who stole corpses from cemeteries, skinned them, and cured the skin in order to wear it. Wrestler knew that nothing human is foreign. He had learned enough about so-called monsters to know that you don't find them in gothic dungeons or humid forests. You find them at the mall, at the school, in the town or city with the rest of us. But how do you find them before they victimize someone? With animals, it depends on perspective. The kitten is a monster to the bird, and the bird is a monster to the worm. With man, it is likewise a matter of perspective, but more complicated. Because the rapist might first be the charming stranger, the assassin first the admiring fan. The human predator, unlike the others, doesn't wear a costume so different from ours that he can always be recognized by the naked eye. The blind eye, of course, will never recognize him, which is why I devote this chapter and the next to removing the blinders, to revealing the truths and the myths about the disguises someone might use to victimize you. I'll start with a hackneyed myth you'll recognize from plenty of TV news reports. Residents here describe the killer as a shy man who kept to himself. They say he was a quiet and cordial neighbor. Aren't you tired of this? A more accurate and honest way for TV news to interpret the banal interviews they conduct with neighbors would be to report, neighbors didn't know anything relevant. Instead, news reporters present non-information as if it is information. They might as well say, and sometimes do, the toll booth operator who'd taken his quarters for years described the killer as quiet and normal. By the frequency of this cliché, 
you could almost believe that apparent normalcy is a pre-incident indicator for aberrant crime. It isn't. One thing that does predict violent criminality is violence in one's childhood. For example, Bressler's research confirmed an astonishingly consistent statistic about serial killers. 100% have been abused as children, either with violence, neglect, or humiliation. You wouldn't think so by the TV news reports on the early family life of one accused serial killer, Ted Kaczynski, believed to be the Unabomber. They told us that his mother was a nice woman, well-liked by neighbors, as if that has any bearing on anything. Neighbors usually have only one qualification for being in news reports. They are willing to speak to reporters. Don't you think something more than the neighbors knew about might have gone on in that home when Ted and his brother David were children? Just look at a few facts about the family. The Kaczynskis raised two boys, both of whom dropped out of society as adults and lived antisocial, isolated lives. One of them lived for a time in a ditch he dug in the ground, and that was the sane one, David, who didn't end up killing anybody. If prosecutors are right, then the crazy one, Ted, grew up to become a brutal remote-control serial killer. Yet neighbors tell reporters that they saw nothing unusual, and reporters tell us the family was normal, and the myth that violence comes out of nowhere is perpetuated. I don't mean here to indict all parents who raise violent children, for there are cases in which awful acts are committed by people with organic mental disorders, those the National Alliance of Mental Illness correctly terms no-fault diseases. It is also true that many people with mental illnesses were abused as children. Genetic predispositions may also play some role in violence, but whatever cards are dealt to a family, parents have at a minimum what Daniel Goleman, author of Emotional Intelligence, calls a window of opportunity. That window was slammed shut during the childhoods of most violent people. To understand who these mistreated children become, we must start where they started, as regular people. One of them grew up to rape Kelly and kill another woman. One of them murdered Rebecca Schaefer. One of them killed a police officer just after Robert Thompson left that convenience store. And one of them wrote the book you are reading. Difficult childhoods excuse nothing, but they explain many things, just as your childhood does. Thinking about that introspectively is the best way to sharpen your ability to predict what others will do. Ask and answer why you do what you do. When assassin Robert Bardo told me he was treated at home like the family cat, fed and left in his room, it occurred to me to ask him to compare his childhood with his current life in prison. Bardo. It's the same in the sense that I'm always withdrawing within myself, in my cell, just like back at home. De Becker. Are there any differences between what you do here and what you did when you were a child? Bardo. Well, I have to be more social here. De Becker. Didn't you have any requirement at home to be social? Bardo. No, I learned that in prison. As long as there are parents preparing children for little more than incarceration, we'll have no trouble keeping our prisons full. While society foots the bill, 
It is individual victims of crime who pay the highest price. In studying Bardo's childhood of abuse and neglect, I could not ignore the similarity of some of our early experiences. I was also struck by the extraordinary intersection of our adult experiences, both drawn as we were to opposite sides of assassination. The revelation reminded me of Stacy J., a would-be assassin I know well. For years, my office has prevented him from successfully encountering the client of mine with whom he is obsessed. I came to know his family through the many times I had to call and ask them to fly to Los Angeles and take him home, or the times they called our office to warn that Stacy was on his way to see my client, or that he had stolen a car, or was missing from a mental hospital. Once, I found him slumped in a phone booth, clothes torn, bleeding from a wound on each leg, wounds all over his face, and completely crazy from a week off medication. On the way to the emergency room, he described the origins of his interest in assassination. When John Kennedy was killed, that's when I knew. That's when it all started. Stacy and I had both been profoundly affected by the same event, each of us sitting at ten years old in front of a television at the exact same moment in time. In part because of what we saw back then, we now found ourselves together, one of us stalking a public figure, the other protecting a public figure. In the 15 years my office has monitored his behavior, Stacy has mellowed some, but from time to time he still requires our attention or the attention of the Secret Service for threats he has made to kill Ronald Reagan. When I see him, some years doing well, other years doing terribly, overweight and damaged by the side effects of medication, I think of him at 10, and I wonder about the paths of people's lives. Though I didn't end up a violent man myself, I did become a kind of ambassador between the two worlds, fluent in both languages. I'm able to tell you something about how many criminals think because it's similar to how I thought during much of my life. For example, because my childhood became all about prediction, I learned to live in the future. I didn't feel things in the present because I wanted to be a moving target gone to the future before any blow could really be felt. This ability to live in tomorrow or next year immunized me against the pain and hopelessness of the worst moments, but it also made me reckless about my own safety. Recklessness and bravado are features of many violent people. Some might call it daring or bravery, but as you'll see in the chapter about assassins, heroism has two sides. As a child, I was left with the pastimes that crossed time, worrying and predicting. I could see a vision of the future better than most people because the present didn't distract me. This single-mindedness is another characteristic common to many criminals. Even things that would frighten most people could not distract me as a boy, for I had become so familiar with danger that it no longer caused alarm. Just as a surgeon loses his aversion to gore, so does the violent criminal. You can spot this feature in people who don't react as you might to shocking things. When everyone else who just witnessed a hostile argument is shaken up, for example, this person is calm. Another characteristic common to predatory criminals, and many other people as well, is their perceived need to be in control. Think of someone you know whom you might call a control freak. 
That person, like most violent people, grew up in a chaotic, violent, or addictive home. At a minimum, it was a home where parents did not act consistently and reliably, a place where love was uncertain or conditional. For him or her, controlling others became the only certain way to predict their behavior. People can be very motivated to become control experts because an inability to predict behavior is absolutely intolerable for human beings and every other social animal. The fact that most people act predictably is literally what holds human societies together. In sharing these few features, I don't mean to say that all men who are reckless or brave, who are calm when others are alarmed and who seek to be in control are likely to be violent. These are simply three small pieces of the human violence puzzle to more fully inform your intuition. Another is that murderers are not as different from us as we'd like to think. I'll protect the anonymity of the friend who told me about an experience she had in her 20s. She was so angry at an ex-boyfriend that she fantasized about killing him, though she knew she'd never really do anything like that. As she was driving to work one morning, an amazing coincidence occurred. Her ex-boyfriend was crossing the street directly in the path of her car. His being there seemed like a signal, and as her anger welled up, this woman pushed the accelerator to the floor. The car was going about 50 miles an hour when it struck him. But having moved enough at the last moment to save his life, he was hit in the leg only. Were it not for the loudness of her car, the woman would be marked today as a common killer. Instead, she is among the world's most famous and admired people, someone you know of whom you certainly wouldn't have pegged as being like a murderer. You probably know more people who have tried to kill someone than you realize. As I learned again when Mark Wynn told me a story about his violent, now former stepfather. My brother and I decided we'd had enough, but we didn't have a gun to shoot him with, and we knew we couldn't stab him. We'd seen a TV commercial for Black Flag Bug Spray, and since it was lethal, we found our father's wine bottle on the nightstand and filled it with the bug spray. Later. He came into the living room with a bottle and started kicking it back. He didn't realize he was drinking poison and he finished every drop. Then we just waited for him to roll over on the floor and die. What makes Mark Wynn's story doubly interesting is that he is Sergeant Mark Wynn, a founder of Nashville's Domestic Violence Division, considered the most innovative in the nation. Solely because his stepfather survived, Mark is not a murderer. And though he attended crime school, as he puts it, he did not grow up to be a criminal. More on why some do and why others do not in Chapter 12. I assure you, you've sat next to someone sometime whose history, if you knew it, would amaze you. He might even have committed the kind of crime we see on the TV news, the kind of act about which we ask, who could do such a thing? Well, now you know. Anyone could do it. Though our experiences as children will affect much of what we do, a violent history does not ensure a violent future. There's a story about playwright David Mamet, a pure genius of human behavior. When told about the complaints of two famous cast members in one of his plays, he joked, if they didn't want to be stars, they shouldn't have had those awful childhoods. It's not an original revelation, 
that some who have weathered great challenges when they were young created great things as adults. From artists to scientists, even to President Clinton, who, when he was a small boy, was shot at by his stepfather. People with secret childhoods can make the most public contributions. The boy who suffers violence and sees preventable death might grow up to help people avoid violence and preventable deaths. The boy whose father is killed by robbers might grow up to be a Secret Service agent protecting the president, father. The girl whose mother dies of Alzheimer's might become a world-famous neurologist. The boy who escapes chaos by going into his imagination might grow up to enrich millions of filmgoers with that same imagination. These people are in their jobs for more than the paychecks. There are reasons we all do what we do, and those reasons are sometimes displayed. Unfortunately, many children of violence will contribute something else to our nation. More violence. Against their children, against their wives, against you or me. And that's why the topics of childhood and our shared humanness appear in a book written to help you be safer. When you can find no other common ground to aid in your predictions, remember that the vast majority of violent people started as you did, felt what you felt, wanted what you wanted. The difference is in the lessons they learned. It saddens me to know that as I write these words and as you read them, some child is being taught that violence has a place, learning that when it comes to cruelty, it is better to give than to receive. Had it not been for the reminders in my work, I might have cared about none of this. But I've met too many people who were brutalized as children and gave it back to society tenfold. They may have grown up looking like everyone else, but they send subtle signals that can reveal their intent. Chapter 4 Survival Signals People should learn to see and so avoid all danger. Just as a wise man keeps away from mad dogs, so one should not make friends with evil men. Buddha Kelly had been apprehensive from the moment she heard the stranger's voice, and now she wants me to tell her why. More than anything else, it was just the fact that someone was there, because having heard no doors open before the man appeared, Kelly knew, at least intuitively, that he must have been waiting out of sight near the entry hall. Only as we spoke did she realize that when he said he was going to the fourth floor, he didn't offer why. It was Kelly who had filled in the blanks, concluding that he was visiting the Kleins who lived across the hall from her. Now, as we are talking, she realizes that if the Kleins had admitted a guest over the intercom, she'd have heard the loud buzz of the electric lock being released and Mrs. Klein would have been at the top of the stairs already well into a high-volume conversation with her visitor. It was because of all this that Kelly's intuition sent her the signal to be wary. Kelly tells me that she didn't listen to herself because there wasn't anything she saw in the man's behavior to explain the alarm she felt. Just as some things must be seen to be believed, some must be believed to be seen. The stranger's behavior didn't match Kelly's image of a rapist's behavior, and she couldn't consciously recognize what she didn't recognize. Neither can you. So one way to reduce risk is to learn what risk looks like. 
The capable face-to-face criminal is an expert at keeping his victim from seeing survival signals. But the very methods he uses to conceal them can reveal them. Forced Teaming Kelly asked me what signals her attacker displayed, and I start with the one I call forced teaming. It was shown through his use of the word we. We've got a hungry cat up there. Forced teaming is an effective way to establish premature trust because a we're-in-the-same-boat attitude is hard to rebuff without feeling rude. Sharing a predicament, like being stuck in a stalled elevator or arriving simultaneously at a just-closed store, will understandably move people around social boundaries. But forced teaming is not about coincidence. It is intentional and directed, and it is one of the most sophisticated manipulations. The detectable signal of forced teaming is the projection of a shared purpose or experience where none exists. Both of us. We're some team. How are we going to handle this? Now we've done it. Etc. David Mamet's film, House of Games, is a wonderful exploration of cons and con artists that shows forced teaming at work. A young soldier enters a Western Union office late one evening. He's anxious about whether the money he needs for a bus ticket will arrive there before Western Union closes. Another man is there, apparently in the same predicament. The two commiserate while waiting, and then the man tells the soldier, Hey, if my money comes in first, I'll give you whatever amount you need. You can send it to me when you get back to the base. The soldier is moved by this kindness, but the stranger brushes it off, saying, You do the same for me. In fact, The stranger is not in the same boat, is not expecting any money to be wired. He's a con artist. Predictably, the soldier's money is the only to arrive, and when the Western Union office closes, he insists that the stranger accepts some of his cash. The best cons make the victim want to participate. Kelly didn't consciously recognize what her intuition clearly knew so she couldn't apply the simple defense for forced teaming, which is to make a clear refusal to accept the concept of partnership. I didn't ask for your help, and I do not want it. Like many of the best defenses, this one has the cost of appearing rude. Kelly now knows it's a small cost, comparatively speaking. Safety is the preeminent concern of all creatures, and it clearly justifies a seemingly abrupt and rejecting response from time to time. Anyway, rudeness is relative. If while waiting in some line a person steps on your foot a second time and we bark, hey, we don't call our response rude. We might even feel we showed restraint. That's because the appropriateness of our response is relative to the behavior that provoked it. If people would view forced teaming as the inappropriate behavior it is, we might feel less concerned about appearing rude in response. Forced teaming is done in many contexts for many reasons. But when applied by a stranger to a woman in a vulnerable situation, such as alone in a remote or unpopulated area, it is always inappropriate. It is not about partnership or coincidence. It is about establishing rapport. And that may or may not be all right, depending on why someone seeks rapport. Generally speaking, rapport building has a far better reputation than it deserves. It is perceived as admirable when, in fact, 
it's almost always done for self-serving reasons. Even though the reasons most people seek rapport aren't sinister, such as pleasantly conversing with someone you've just met at a party, that doesn't mean a woman must participate with every stranger who approaches her. Perhaps the most admirable reason to seek rapport would be to put someone at ease. But if that is a stranger's entire intent, a far simpler way is to just leave the woman alone. Charm and Niceness Charm is another overrated ability. Note that I called it an ability, not an inherent feature of one's personality. Charm is almost always a directed instrument, which, like rapport building, has motive. To charm is to compel, to control by allure or attraction. Think of charm as a verb, not a trait. If you consciously tell yourself, this person is trying to charm me, as opposed to, this person is charming, you'll be able to see around it. Most often, when you see what's behind charm, it won't be sinister, but other times, you'll be glad you looked. So many signals, I tell Kelly, are in the face. She intuitively read the face of her attacker as she is now reading mine, as I am now reading hers. University of California at San Francisco psychologist Paul Ekman says, the face tells us subtleties and feelings that only a poet can put into words. One way to charm is with a smile, which Ekman calls the most important signal of intent. He adds, it is also the typical disguise used to mask the emotions. University of California at Los Angeles psychiatrist Leslie Brothers says, if I'm trying to deceive someone, that person has to be just a bit smarter than I am in order to see through my deceit. That means you have sort of an arms race. The predatory criminal does all he can to make that arms race look like detente. He was so nice, is a comment I often hear from people describing the man who, moments or months after his niceness, attacked them. We must learn and then teach our children that niceness does not equal goodness. Niceness is a decision, a strategy of social interaction. It is not a character trait. People seeking to control others almost always present the image of a nice person in the beginning. Like rapport building, charm, and the deceptive smile, unsolicited niceness often has a discoverable motive. Kelly nods and reminds me that her attacker was very nice. I tell her about a rhyme by Edward Gorey, the master of dark humor. The proctor buys a pupil ices and hopes the boy will not resist. When he attempts to practice vices, few people even know exist. Yes, the proctor is nice enough to buy some sweets for the boy, and he is nice in lots of other ways. But that is not a credential of his good intent. Way back in 1859, in a book called Self-Help, which pioneered a new genre, Samuel Smiles said personality itself is plainly a vehicle for self-advancement. He wrote that men whose acts are at direct variance with their words command no respect, and what they say has but little weight. Unfortunately, this isn't as true in our time. Unlike when people lived in small communities and couldn't escape their past behavior, we live in an age of anonymous one-time encounters, and many people have become expert at the art of fast persuasion. 
Trust, formerly earned through actions, is now purchased with sleight of hand and sleight of words. I encourage women to explicitly rebuff unwanted approaches, but I know it's difficult to do. Just as rapport building has a good reputation, explicitness applied by women in this culture has a terrible reputation. A woman who is clear and precise is viewed as cold or a bitch or both. A woman is expected, first and foremost, to respond to every communication from a man, and the response is expected to be one of willingness and attentiveness. It's considered attractive as she is a bit uncertain, the opposite of explicit. Women are expected to be warm and open, and in the context of approaches from male strangers, warmth lengthens the encounter, raises his expectations, increases his investment, and, at best, wastes time. At worst, it serves the man who has sinister intent by providing much of the information he will need to evaluate and then control his prospective victim. Too many details. People who want to deceive you, I explained to Kelly, will often use a simple technique that has a simple name, too many details. The man's use of the story about the cat he left unfed in a friend's apartment, too many details. His reference to leaving the door open, like ladies do in old movies, too many details. His volunteering that he is always late, broken watch, not my fault, too many details. When people are telling the truth, they don't feel doubted, so they don't feel the need for additional support in the form of details. When people lie, however, even if what they say sounds credible to you, it doesn't sound credible to them, so they keep talking. Each detail may be only a small tack he throws on the road, but together they can stop a truck. The defense is to remain consciously aware of the context in which details are offered. Context is always apparent at the start of an interaction and usually apparent at the end of one, but too many details can make us lose sight of it. Imagine gazing out the window of a train as it pulls away from the station. Details move by you, or you by them, slowly at first. As the train gets going a little faster, you see more details, but each one more briefly. An empty playground, a phrase painted in graffiti, some kids playing in the street, a construction site, the steeple of a church until the train reaches a speed that requires you to let the individual components become a neighborhood. This same transition can occur as a conversation becomes a robbery. Every type of con relies upon distracting us from the obvious. Kelly had so many details thrown at her that she lost sight of this simple context. The man was an absolute stranger. Whenever the train got going fast enough that she was uncomfortable, whenever she might have seen what was happening, like his taking the shopping bag from her hand even though she said no, he slowed the train down with some new irrelevance. He used catchy details to come to be perceived as someone familiar to her, someone she could trust. But she knew him artificially. She knew the con, not the con man. The person who recognizes the strategy of too many details sees the forest while simultaneously being able to see the few trees that really matter. When approached by a stranger while walking on some city street at night, no matter how engaging he might be, you must never lose sight of the context. He is a stranger who approached you. 
A good exercise is to occasionally remind yourself of where you are and what your relationship is to the people around you. With a date who stays beyond his welcome, for example, no matter how jokey or charming he may be, a woman can keep herself focused on context simply by thinking, I have asked him to leave twice. The defense for too many details is simple. Bring the context into conscious thought. Typecasting. Another strategy used by Kelly's rapist is called typecasting. A man labels a woman in some slightly critical way, hoping she'll feel compelled to prove that his opinion is not accurate. You're probably too snobbish to talk to the likes of me, a man might say, and the woman will cast off the mantle of snob by talking to him. A man tells a woman, you don't look like someone who reads the newspaper, and she sets out to prove that she is intelligent and well-informed. When Kelly refused her attacker's assistance, he said, there's such a thing as being too proud, you know, and she resisted the label by accepting his help. Typecasting always involves a slight insult, and usually one that is easy to refute. But since it's the response itself that the typecaster seeks, the defense is silence, acting as if the words weren't even spoken. If you engage, you can win the point, but you might lose something greater. Not that it matters what some stranger thinks anyway, but the typecaster doesn't even believe what he says is true. He just believes that it will work. Loan sharking. The next signal I explained to Kelly is one I call loan sharking. He wanted to be allowed to help you because that would place you in his debt, and the fact that you owe a person something makes it hard to ask him to leave you alone. The more traditional loan shark gladly lends one amount, but cruelly collects much more. Likewise, the predatory criminal generously offers assistance, but is always calculating the debt. The defense is to bring two rarely remembered facts into consciousness. He approached me, and I didn't ask for any help. Then, though a person may turn out to be just a kindly stranger, watch for other signals. We're all familiar with the stranger who offers to help a woman with her groceries. Most often, he's a fairly unsophisticated loan shark looking to pick someone up. The debt he records in his ledger can usually be paid off quite easily. Just a little talk will do it. But he has something in common with the predatory criminal who imposes his counterfeit charity into someone's life. Motive. There's no spiritually-minded movement dedicated to lightening the burden of American women by carrying their groceries. At best, loan sharking is a strategy on a par with asking a woman, do you come here often? At its worst, it exploits a victim's sense of obligation and fairness. I haven't focused here on the criminal who simply walks up, displays a weapon, and demands money. That's because he is distinctly more obvious than those who use the strategies I've described. It's important to clarify that forced teaming, too many details, charm, niceness, typecasting, and loan sharking are all in daily use by people who have no sinister intent. You might have already recognized several of these strategies as those commonly used by men who want little more than an opportunity to engage a woman in conversation. I don't mean to cramp the style of some crude Casanova, but times have changed and we men can surely develop some approaches that are not steeped in deceit and manipulation. 
the unsolicited promise. For the next signal, I asked Kelly to go back to that moment when she was reluctant to let her attacker into her apartment. He had said, I'll just put this stuff down and go. I promise. The unsolicited promise is one of the most reliable signals because it is nearly always of questionable motive. Promises are used to convince us of an intention, but they are not guarantees. A guarantee is a promise that offers some compensation if the speaker fails to deliver. He commits to make it all right again if things don't go as he says they would. But promises offer no such collateral. They're the very hollowest instruments of speech, showing nothing more than the speaker's desire to convince you of something. So, aside from meeting all unsolicited promises with skepticism, whether or not they are about safety, it's useful to ask yourself, why does this person need to convince me? The answer, it turns out, is not about him. It's about you. The reason a person promises something, the reason he needs to convince you, is that he can see that you're not convinced. You have doubt, which is a messenger of intuition, likely because there is reason to doubt. The great gift of the unsolicited promise is that the speaker tells you so himself. In effect, the promise holds up a mirror in which you get a second chance to see your own intuitive signal. The promise is the image and the reflection of your doubt. Always, in every context, be suspicious of the unsolicited promise. When Kelly's rapist told her he would leave after he got something to drink from the kitchen, he detected her doubt. So he added, I promise. Here's the defense. When someone says, I promise, you say, at least in your head, you're right, I am hesitant about trusting you, and maybe with good reason. Thank you for pointing it out. Discounting the word, no. It's late, and I suggest to Kelly that we'll discuss the rest tomorrow, but she wants another signal before we stop. Like every victim of a truly awful crime, she's anxious to make some sense of it, to understand it, to control it. So I speak to her about one more signal, perhaps the most universally significant one of all, a man's ignoring or discounting the concept of no. Kelly's rapist ignored it several times in various forms. First, she said no, she didn't want his help. Then she showed him no when she didn't immediately let go of the bag. Actions are far more eloquent and credible than words, particularly a short and undervalued word like no, and particularly when it's offered tentatively or without conviction. So when Kelly said no, but then agreed, it wasn't really no anymore. No is a word that must never be negotiated, because the person who chooses not to hear it is trying to control you. In situations in which unsolicited offers of assistance are appropriate, such as approaches by a salesman or flight attendant, it is simply annoying if you have to decline three times. With a stranger, however, refusal to hear no can be an important survival signal, as with a suitor, a friend, a boyfriend, even a husband. Declining to hear no is a signal that someone is either seeking control or refusing to relinquish it. With strangers, even those with the best intentions, never, ever relent on the issue of no, because it sets the stage for more efforts to control. 
If you let someone talk you out of the word no, you might as well wear a sign that reads, you are in charge. The worst response when someone fails to accept no is to give ever-weakening refusals and then give in. Another common response that serves the criminal is to negotiate. I really appreciate your offer, but let me try to do it on my own first. Negotiations are about possibilities, and providing access to someone who makes you apprehensive is not a possibility you want to keep on the agenda. I encourage people to remember that no is a complete sentence. The criminal's process of victim selection, which I call the interview, is similar to a shark's circling potential prey. The predatory criminal of every variety is looking for someone, a vulnerable someone who will allow him to be in control. And just as he constantly gives signals, so does he read them. The man in the underground parking lot who approaches a woman as she puts groceries in the trunk of her car and offers assistance may be a gentleman, or he may be conducting an interview. The woman whose shoulders tense slightly, who looks intimidated and shyly says, No, thanks, I think I've got it, may be his victim. Conversely, the woman who turns toward him raises her hands to the stop position and says directly, I don't want your help is less likely to be his victim. A decent man would understand her reaction or, more likely, wouldn't have approached a woman alone in the first place, unless she really had some obvious need. If a man doesn't understand the reaction and stomps off dejected, that's fine too. In fact, any reaction, even anger from a decent man who had no sinister intent, is preferable to continued attention from a violent man who might have used your concern about rudeness to his advantage. A woman alone who needs assistance is actually far better off choosing someone and asking for help as opposed to waiting for an unsolicited approach. The person you choose is nowhere near as likely to bring you hazard as is the person who chooses you. That's because the possibility that you'll inadvertently select a predatory criminal for whom you are the right victim type is very remote. I encourage women to ask other women for help when they need it and it's likewise safer to accept an offer from a woman than from a man. Unfortunately, women rarely make such offers to other women, and I wish more would. I want to clarify that many men offer help without any sinister or self-serving intent, with no more in mind than kindness and chivalry. But I've been addressing those times that men refuse to hear the word no, and that is not chivalrous, it is dangerous. When someone ignores that word, ask yourself, why is this person seeking to control me? What does he want? It's best to get away from the person altogether, but if that's not practical, the response that serves safely is to dramatically raise your insistence, skipping several levels of politeness. I said no. When I encounter people hung up on the seeming rudeness of this response, and there are many, I imagine this conversation after a stranger is told no by a woman he is approached. Man, what a bitch. What's your problem, lady? I was just trying to offer a little help to a pretty woman. What are you so paranoid about? Woman. You're right. I shouldn't be wary. I'm overreacting about nothing. I mean, just because a man makes an unsolicited and persistent approach in an underground parking lot in a society where crimes against women have risen four times faster than the general crime rate, 
and three out of four women will suffer a violent crime, and just because I've personally heard horror stories from every female friend I've ever had, and just because I have to consider where I park, where I walk, whom I talk to, and whom I date in the context of whether someone will kill me or rape me or scare me half to death, and just because several times a week someone makes an inappropriate remark, stares at me, harasses me, follows me, or drives alongside my car pacing me, and just because I have to deal with the apartment manager who gives me the creeps for reasons I haven't figured out. Yet I can tell by the way he looks at me that given an opportunity he'd do something that would get us both in the evening news, and just because these are life and death issues most men know nothing about so that I'm made to feel foolish for being cautious even though I live at the center of a swirl of possible hazards doesn't mean a woman should be wary of a stranger who ignores the word no. Whether or not men can relate to it or believe it or accept it, that's the way it is. Women, particularly in big cities, live with a constant wariness. Their lives are literally on the line in ways men just don't experience. Ask some man you know, when is the last time you were concerned or afraid that another person would harm you? Many men can't recall an incident within years. Ask a woman the same question, and most will give you a recent example or say, last night, today, or even every day. Still, women's concerns about safety are frequently the subject of critical comments from the men in their lives. One woman told me of constant ridicule and sarcasm from her boyfriend whenever she discussed fear or safety. He called her precautions silly and asked, How can you live like that? To which she replied, How could I not? I have a message for women who feel forced to defend their safety concerns. Tell Mr. I know everything about danger that he has nothing to contribute to the topic of your personal security. Tell him that your survival instinct is a gift from nature that knows a lot more about your safety than he does. And tell him that nature does not require his approval. It's understandable that the perspectives of men and women on safety are so different. Men and women live in different worlds. I don't remember where I first heard this simple description of one dramatic contrast between the genders, but it is strikingly accurate. At core, men are afraid women will laugh at them, while at core, women are afraid men will kill them. Context of white supremacy, that is the end of the first audio segment. Uh, we are not quite done with chapter three, excuse me, chapter four. Uh, we're kind of in the midpoint. Uh, there's kind of a, not an ellipsis, but there's a break uh, in the chapter. Uh, so we'll pick back up the paragraph where we'll start the second audio segment. It begins, I referred Kelly to Impact, which I believe is the best self-defense course for women. That's the sentence where we'll pick up at for the second audio segment. Number to dial if folks have thoughts, questions on Mr. Gavin DeBecker, Racist Suspects, The Gift of Fear, Survival Signals That Protect Us from Violence. The number is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164.
the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. <clears throat> Price for admission today, all the folks uh, who chime in, if you have questions, comments uh, you would like to share. So he said, ask some man you know, when is the last time you were concerned or afraid that another person would harm you? Now, he said many men who are asked this question can't think of anything for years. I immediately thought of the yoga studio and white women trying to assault me. I didn't have to go back uh, into the ancient archives. In addition to other times when I have been out and about when I was at the grocery store uh, and the white security guard came up and asked me if I had been banned. I think that just happened within the last few months. Uh, I, listed, I, I went through just it's been about two minutes since I read that paragraph. And I thought of at least two or three different incidents which happened within the last 18 months or so. Uh, where I thought, oh, yeah, I could be harmed. Absolutely. Like violently harmed, not just somebody said something that hurt my feelings or anything like that. Like I could be violently harmed uh, here by whites uh, and there might not be anything to be done about it. I can think of at least three different incidents. Some of them involved enforcement officials and some of them do not. They're just regular race soldiers, no badge. But everyone who dials in, especially male callers. When is the last time you were concerned or afraid that another person would harm you. Also, I have one more question. Now, Mr. Uh, DeBecker, he said this uh, flagrantly last week. When we did our first session. He said that this book is skewed towards the female perspective as being victims of violence because globally they are more likely to be victims uh, of violence. Uh, and he says that uh, that's kind of the, the position that he takes in the text. Uh, I have concluded there are very, very few times where people are talking about, especially if it's a white person, white man or woman, where they are talking about uh, females collectively or in general, but they really mean white women. There clearly is no focus on non-white females, especially black females. That has been my experience. We are not that far into the book. We're still on chapter four, but I would say it tends to hold for this text as well. So I'll ask the subtitle of the book is survival signals that protect us from violence. Who is the us that he's talking about? Who is he? See, who is he writing this book for to protect from violence in a system of racism, white supremacy? We had at least two cows listeners who had read this book so far, and it seems some other cows listeners are familiar with Mr. DeBecker. So maybe if you all feel like this is a book for general population, uh, that he's also talking to black people. Oprah is a huge fan of this book. Let's hear that. But uh, to me, it very much sounds like this is a book that strongly caters to white women, unless I am misreading. Star six one from folks who have comments again. When is the last time you were concerned or afraid that another person would harm you? Let's make sure we get an answer from everybody who participates on that one. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up. If you have comments, questions you would like to share uh, star six one to participate. Yes, ma'am, you heard? 
Greetings, Mr. Demry Four. Yes, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. I was thinking about this book um, while I was reading it earlier and thinking that, you know, he'll probably be going over a lot of the same things in the book, but, you know, it's sort of surprising me. He's, he's taking different angles, you know, and it's kind of forcing you to pay attention to what he's saying. I noticed in Chapter 3, he mentioned Marsha Clark, who, if I'm not mistaken, I think was the prosecutor in O.J. Simpson's trial. And it looks like uh, he didn't say that was his friend, but we know what if she was calling him to assist her in this guy going to prison, and he ended up going to prison for life, then uh, he usually assists prosecutors in a lot of these cases. And um, I noticed, too, that uh, he's taking the whole concept of fear, whereas if you go through a uh, self-help program or some 12-step program, part of it is looking at an inventory of your life and then taking that and investigating uh, your fears and then trying to face those fears. So uh, the things that he mentioned about fear helping you with your intuition, I can uh, I can buy it to some extent. But when he he starts to talk about the experiences that children have that will affect much of what they end up doing, I guess, once they uh, become grown. And a violent history does not ensure a violent future. But if you look at it, you know, from his point of view, that may be true, but in a lot of instances, it seems like a violent history would almost uh, guarantee a violent future. But let me get to your question first. Uh, your question about when, as a black man, I can say it has been as recent as a couple of weeks ago, because I thought I was going to be harmed in my own driveway. When some guy was trying to turn around in my driveway, I went out and I had some cones up in my driveway. And he was trying to negotiate the turn, so I was going to move the cone. And he jumped out of his truck, I guess, and was saying, you coming at me, man? And, I, and he was in my driveway. <laughs> and the way I think I disfused it, situation because he had a Masonic symbol on his head, you know, wearing a hat on his head, and I pointed to him and I said, is that the way a Masonic brother acts? And he calmed down. But it's almost a constant thing. If you're a black person, a non-white person, you could be harmed uh, on, on a daily basis or feel that way. Um, 
Okay, um, Forrest Keeney, you know, some of the stuff that he's talking about is some of it is the tactics that uh, white people use to uh, practice racism. Forced teaming, you know, uh, uh, feeling like you're part of the team, uh, making you feel like that, um, and then having some other intentions. Uh, that's one of the one of the strategies. Uh, and the lady said, if she was trying to deceive somebody, that person would have to be smarter than she was in order to see through their deceit. It means you have sort of an arm's length. Um, I think that you can see, you can, you can have this feeling that somebody is deceiving you. Uh, like he was saying, the intuition. You don't necessarily have to be smarter than the person uh, to know that they're being deceptive. And Oh, this is one other thing about oh women. When uh, I think he's speaking to women when he's saying uh, declining to hear no is a signal that someone is either seeking control or refusing to relinquish it. And uh, I encourage people to remember that no is a complete sentence. Uh, You know, that reminds me of. You know, if somebody continuously is not hearing or refusing to hear no, it, it seems a uh, logical response is, what part of no don't you understand? They just keep saying that over and over, and I think they'll get it. But I'll move my line on that, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Mr. Demery, for black self-respect. Got to defend your driveway, even with the cones up. Uh, excellent job with diffusing the uh, situation. Uh, even as Mr. Demi Ford was sharing with us, I remembered additional incidents just this year. Uh, I was attempting to cross the street in front of my residence. This is not a six lane highway. This is a residential area. The speed limit is, I think, 25. Uh, it's you cannot go zooming through. Uh, and I was at the intersection. I attempted to cross the street. Uh, white motorist white woman yelled at me did not slow down i thought i was going to be ran over uh, and this has happened repeatedly i said they've had reports about black people it being more dangerous and taking longer for them to cross the street they've got a number of reports that uh substantiate this and this has happened to me repeatedly where i've been called a nigger had items thrown at me repeatedly uh over a five-year period and most of this has happened since i've been living in uh washington state but that's an all-the-time thing, uh, feeling as though I could be ran over uh, at any time, just attempting to get to the sidewalk. Other folks who dialed in that we have missed totally, if you have commentary, proceed again. Remember, everyone who participates, when was the last time that you felt afraid or that you might be harmed? May I be heard? Red in Nevada. Hello, thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. Um, If I may first comment on something from last week, I did listen to the archives. And 
one of the things that I remember him saying was that when he was speaking to the white man who coined the term serial killer and how that white man had said 100% of the serial killers had showed some signs of abuse and with all the different studies, and of course, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not, I've never worked in the FBI nor been a profile or anything like that, like that white man, but I'll never recall um, Jeffrey Dahmer having any signs of childhood abuse and neither do I recall that of Ted Bundy. The only thing that I remember about Ted Bundy was that um, he was basically possibly lied to about who his actual mother was, but I thought that was, that was interesting. But then when it comes to them saying that, you know, serial killers are more violent, but they also don't admit to the fact of them being born violent or anything like that, or just, you know, the, the true innate, um, nature of white men and their violence. Um, I guess as far as the fearful part, um, I am a black female, but it is, um, I guess the last time I felt fearful, I guess it had to be this week, usually with white men, um, not really, not really, um, really understanding what their comments, either about what I'm wearing or, or whatever, what, what they mean. So I automatically have this, um, this thought of, of fear and making sure that I'm really cautious around that particular white man. There was one white man at the job, made a comment about, about what I was wearing. And then I made up in my mind not to wear it anymore. But that's kind of something I don't, and I thought maybe at the time, just kind of like the book says, maybe I'm overreacting or something like that. But, um, but that's, that's the most recent one. But yes, I definitely um, feel fear. And I can understand how, how black males can, you know, feel the same, especially, you know, the comments maybe being from white and uh, white women and white men. Um, with this segment, um, I, I did appreciate uh, Mr. Demery Ford's comment, especially about, um, the with white people teaming, if I'm not mistaken, because I kind of got um, off track with last week, but uh, I I definitely understand how like with you cannot really say no, um, at least that's how I feel because it's a constant having to uh, to keep you know saying no or defending yourself or or what have you. Um, so I've just really been trying to think about it in the racist con uh, context. And uh, this book really makes me think of every person that he um, speaks about in the book is like this frail white woman and like a damsel in distress. That's usually what I, um, the the feeling that I get when white men are, um, trying to speak about any type of protection of white women, the main damsels in distress. And I feel like this is, I guess, a kind of, of a book to allow white women, if they don't necessarily have that white man protector around them in that particular moment, for them to know how to defend themselves against, I don't know, uh, either non-white victims or the unfortunate, quote-unquote, white 
male, um, the violent white male. And I'll meet my line for now. Thank you for allowing me to share. Excellent point. That almost sounded like uh, workplace racism tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I don't know if that is wacky. I'm even trying to remember uh, talking about outfits and people commenting about things that you wear uh, in a work environment. I'll put a pin in that for tomorrow. Uh, much obliged to Red in Nevada. Uh, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Good evening, Doss. Good evening, sir. This is Henry Red in Order 4. Um, I like his approach. Um, humanity is violent. Um, in my opinion, what we see today always has been, um, just in various forms. Um, 100% of the serial killers were abused with children. I thought that was very interesting. I mean, when you put 100% on something, that's pretty definitive. Uh, I think that to say the same for child molesters, um, one of the people he was talking about, Bardo, said he learned how to socialize in prison. He never socialized at home. And I just think um, today's technology, we're breeding anti-social children. Um, the only socialization sometimes is with electronic devices, not with people. Um, and um, I think you might see a lot of serial killing in the future, um, false semen is it? False semen, um, or, or fake semen, whatever. I think that that explains uh, what white people do to us. Um, you know, they'll have black people in a military commercial, like we benefit from the war. Uh, black people on the police force. Um, you know, just false semen. You know, you're, you're not really you on their team, but um, black people voting. <laughs> Like, like it's gonna, um, like you're on, on the Democratic team. Like they really care about you. you know, it's, it's this system is built on um, the illusion of inclusion, um, making us feel included. Um, are we trying to con white people? Uh, he was naming the cons, different cons. The guy was attempting with the woman. Um, you know, kept saying no. Well, white people have told us no how many times. And we're still trying to appeal to their um, kindness. We're still trying to con them, it seems like to me, into uh, accepting us instead of just accepting their no as an answer and moving on, trying something else. Um, you learn the con game quick in the city. Um, you, you should be learning that from your parents or whatever, or seeing how they interact with people trying to con them. Uh, the train is full of con artists, you know, coming crying every day with the same stories, and you know, you you know. So I, I like um, how he was, um, how he put that. You know, you never contract with them. You know, it's no, you got to stand by it. You know, don't fall for it. You know, put your put your headphones on, ignore them. Um, you know, and sometimes that's difficult. You know, they they appeal to your your uh, you know something that. You know, you want to defend, you just got to, you know, ignore them. Um, and I think um, a lot of what he was saying, um, I concluded as deductive reasoning. Um, the system trains us to use deductive reasoning to make decisions instead of inductive reasoning, which would be asked questions. Um, you know, why are you trying to help? 
know, get it, you know, why are you not listening to me say no? You know, it'd be loud, you know. But ask for induce induce reason, you know, um don't even if you if you're using an inductive reasoning mindset, you know, your first thing is why is this person trying to help me in the first place? Like I I didn't ask you know, everything he was saying, but I just think that um I would call it inductive reasoning. And I'll move my mind. Thank you. Do you, uh, Thomas in New York, do you recall the last time that you felt uh, afraid that you might be harmed? Well, unfortunately, Gus, I live around a bunch of black people, so that threat is always present. Um, um, but um, by white people, it was the last time I really felt like I could be harmed. I was um, in front of my building, just came home from work, and going to get um, some food from the corner. And uh, I ended up being harassed by police. And um, they were looking for someone who was five foot six. I'm six foot five, but they wasn't letting me go. And uh, somehow I was able to call my wife and she came outside and the situation kind of diffused, but it could have turned real ugly because I was I was getting impatient. You know, I'm waiting for some people to come and look at me and I'm definitely not the person you're looking for. So. You know, it, it, I'm glad that 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 went that way. But that's the by white people. That's the last time I felt like they were gonna harm, me. except for financially, like you know, at work or something. You know, but in real life. Mm. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, I don't. I don't even think we put the caveat on it. Just you know, when was the last time you think you were going to be harmed? Even if it was no other non-white people, that counts too, uh, in my view. Racists are most to blame for that anyway. The way that non-white people treat one another. So yeah, all of that is yeah, all of that counts. Much obliged uh, for sharing, Thomas in New York. Stay safe in New York. Uh, other folks, if you have comments, questions, the number six zero five three one three five one. Six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, people trying to get in uh, comments from people that wrote in as well. There were a number of those. Uh, first listener to write in investor. He writes. <clears throat> he's on the first four chapters. Number one. A significant difference between this book and uh, Kevin Dutton's The Wisdom of Psychopaths, which we read in the archives, is that even though Dutton is an expert, he interviewed a number of other neuroscientists and provided extensive footnotes and supporting to support the text. This text thus far is essentially anecdotal, does not provide any opinions from other experts. We got a few this week and is without supporting footnotes. It reads akin to an autobiography. Number two. The book was published in 1997. I will actually pause right here since Mr. Demery Four already referenced Marsha Clark. Worked on the O.J. Simpson, a prosecutor, didn't just work. She was a prosecutor uh, on the O.J. Simpson case. That case concluded in 1995. This book was published in 1997. Now, with all of the brouhaha over the recent uh, miniseries and the ESPN documentary and OJ Simpson getting out of prison right at the same time as they had the shooting in Las Vegas, another serial white serial killer. Uh, you can you know, see all of the attention that OJ Simpson is getting now more than 20 years after that case. Can you imagine what it was like still in 1997 
uh, how much attention was still focused on O.J. Simpson, how angry white people were about that case, already to have a name drop of Marsha Clark in a book talking about fear, rape, you're going to be harmed, all of that. You've already had a loose mention of O.J. Simpson at a time when he had not been charged and arrested back in jail. He was just free, the juice, white people thinking he killed a white woman, got away with it. That would have been the mentality, I think, closer to 1997 at the time that this book was published. Just saying all of that to say that's what I think would have come to mind for a lot of white and probably even a lot of non-white readers who are reading this book closer to when all of that happened in 95. Now, continuing, this book was published in 97. It was well established that statistically the incidence of violent Violent and property crime have been plummeting in the USA since the early 90s prior to publication of this book. The reasons for this are considered unknown by so-called experts. Should the author have mentioned this, I would say that is extremely important. And that's exactly why I started today's segment with that clip from Bowling from uh, Bowling for Columbine. I said there were a number of different points in that documentary. Uh, they had the author as a white man of the book, The Culture of Fear, where he stated exactly that crime rates keep going down, 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 violent crime. All of the crime rates keep going down, down, down. And you still have white people jumping up and down. Oh, my God. O.J. Simpson is running crazy. Willie Horton is running crazy. Ah, we got to do something. Stop and frisk. We got to lock up more of the black people. They're out here harassing us in their driveway. That's what they've been saying the whole time, even while crime rate is going down. And I just again, we're in a system of racism, white supremacy. Who are racists really fearful of from a position of dominance? Unless it's other white people. Number three, in Wisdom of Psychopaths, the limbic system is not mentioned specifically, but research regarding various components are discussed. The amygdala, the limbic system, the Papez circuit of the brain connects cognitive or cerebral hemispheric portions of the brain with deeper areas of the brain e.g., uh, for example, the hippocampus and the amygdala. It is theorized to connect auditory, olfactory, and visual impulses with deeper connections involved in emotion and memory. It also has connections with the endocrine systems, sweating a feeling in your gut. Is this the seat of intuition? Question. One we can think about as we read. Uh, let's see. Um, Double check, make sure I'm not missing other callers before I get to some of the other folks who uh, wrote in as well. Let's see, other folks who dialed in with a hand up that we've missed totally. We'll check back in again, or actually, I'll get to some of my notes that I have not shared. Uh, let's see. I thought it was significant at the beginning of chapter three when he says, and I guess this would go to the point, uh, the listener who just wrote in saying that this book doesn't really have footnotes. I haven't seen any footnotes thus far uh, either, which I generally do not like when we have a book like this and there's not references and evidence. You know, how did you come to these conclusions? Where did you get this information uh, from? And it's not supported by anything. Generally frown on that. Uh, but he starts this uh, chapter three. He says, before I was 13, I saw a man shot. I saw another beaten and kicked to unconsciousness. I saw a friend struck near lethally in the face and head with a steel rod. I saw my mother become a heroin addict. I saw my sister beaten and 
I was myself a veteran of beatings that had been going on for more than half my life. I thought that was significant, uh, important to at least think about uh, for a moment, uh, having an author tell us all of this. We accept if we accept, OK, he's telling us the truth. What do we make of that? Why is he telling us this? Is he a potential serial killer? Since he said all of the serial killers, 100 percent of them were abused. Why would he mention this? Is this uh, for sympathy with his difficult uh, upbringing? Allegedly, if he went through all of these things, his mom even being uh, on drugs. I think that's one folks should at least take a few moments on. We had talked about uh, the reference to Marsha Clark. Uh, let's see. I thought it was important as well where he says uh, he's talking about Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud. Dr. Welsing talked about both of them a lot. Explored the topic of human violence. Einstein's letter concluded that man has in him the need to hate and destroy. I'm not sure that that's one that uh, can be extrapolated to everybody on the planet. Uh, if we're talking about whites exclusively, since we are in a system of racism, white supremacy, I could see the argument there. But everybody, even individuals classified as non-white, I'm not sure. If folks have thoughts on that, you can share. Uh, I thought it was also uh, interesting when he talked about how there's always uh, this notion about uh, romanticizing non-white people in different parts of the world. He says the Fijians correctly perceived today as the friendliest people in the world were not that long ago among humanity's most violent. That's one right there where I would say footnote, you got to give me something. Uh, there's no, there's no nothing. You don't have a book reverence uh, to quantify exactly. How did you determine that they were humanity's most violent? Did they drop an atomic bomb on someone Did they have, you know, generations, scores, dozens of Jeffrey Dahmer's, uh, running around killing and, and eating uh, people after they had been killed. You got to tell me something. Give me something. If you're going to say that they're the one of the most among humanities, most violent and with no footnote. And he does that for, for everything that he talks about in that section, Africa and all the other non-white people. Um, let's see next. I thought his uh, efforts to, Humanize the Jeffrey Dahmers and Ted Bunny, Ted Bundy's, these killers, serial killers. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Again, I, I generally see uh, I look at that and I contrast that to the generally weak efforts to remind racists that, oh, yes, black people are humans as well. Uh, I just highlighted briefly when he was talking about the impact uh, that it had on him when he heard about John F. Kennedy being killed. I was reminded that uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing shared uh, during the summer of the 50th anniversary of that killing that the initial reports she remembers being in Washington, D.C. at the time was that a black person was blamed. Blamed it on the black person. Civil rights movement in full swing. This is unruly niggers have killed the president. Uh, and then, you know, they went about going to get the correct information, which, again, that's why I said white people, when they start talking about fear, Generally speaking, collectively speaking, frequently it goes back to a black person that they are afraid of, allegedly. Next. Uh, okay, so this is when he starts picking out some of these anecdotes about different uh, events. 
uh, and he, he says, this male, his being there seemed like a signal. And as her anger welled up, this woman pushed the accelerator to the floor of the car. Oh, this was where she talked about killing her boyfriend. Woo, we've had, uh, I think, caller in Florida at the courthouse had talked about uh, some of the white women on his job. One of them had said, uh, I'm such good friends uh, with this white coworker that if she killed someone, I would help her cover it up. And making these type of homicidal remarks on a regular basis. And he presents an anecdote where this woman says, I was so angry uh, that my uh, boyfriend, uh, so upset, or ex-boyfriend, I was so upset that I thought about killing him and actually saw him in the road, hit the accelerator. Whammo, I just talked about having so much difficulty crossing the road. Most recently, it was a white woman uh, who shook her fist, was calling me names, did not slow down as I was attempting to cross at the intersection in a residential neighborhood. And he presents this example of a white woman who he says uh, she sees her boyfriend crossing the street. She pushed the accelerator to the floor. The car was going about 50 miles an hour when it struck him. But having moved enough at the last moment to save his life, he was hit in the leg only were it not for the loudness of the car. This woman be marked today as a common killer. Instead, she is among the world's most famous and admired people. Someone you know of whom you certainly wouldn't have pegged as being like a murderer. Now, I don't know who this person is, but this to me sounds like it could be a white woman uh, protecting the I mean, maybe it's a non-white person. Could be. I'm sure non-white females read this book. We had some who suggested it for the cows. Uh, but wow, uh, to have this happen and you maintain whatever success that you have, you maintain your career, you're still world renowned. Hmm. Next. From chapter four. I thought uh, some of these concepts uh, were very important. I see a lot of those in the system of racism, white supremacy, really the entirety of white supremacy. Racism is about forced teaming uh, and making non-white people think that they are a part of the racist team. You see that all the way back on the plantation. Uh, Minister Malcolm talked about you would have some of these slaves. We sick boss. We are members of the Bodhi plantation. A lot of forced teaming there. Uh, in fact, I can even cite a, a permanent or a, a more current uh, example of the forced teaming. Uh, this concept, which I absolutely hate. One of the things I've noticed is that sometimes you'll be out and about and it'll be perfect strangers and they will come to you with a lot of uh, familiarity as though you are a long lost cousin uh, or a good buddy that they have not seen in 15 years or so and they will run oh my goodness how are you doing give me a hug and a handshake and all of that and you don't know this person you know from adam that's one that i absolutely hate from anyone someone classified as white or non-white just this week we were going to the park i was teaching yoga i talked about it already uh and there was a black male uh, and he did that exactly. He came up, hey, my black brother, what's good? How you doing? All right. <laughs> he did the whole performance of it all. And I was so disgusted. And I was with a group of people. He left and I was uh, actively looking to move away from him because I, I didn't need to read the force teaming part. I have a name for that now, but I'm always super suspicious of that with anyone. But we left and the people that I was with, I told them, I was like, I always hate that. Uh, people come up and act like they know me or we're friends or we've met before. I always despise that. I feel like it's someone who has evil intentions. And she said, well, he, he probably just did it, you know, because you're a black male. He's a black male. And whew, the person said that to me. 
I was a little bit, uh, I did not sleep as well as I would have liked the night before, so I didn't have the same amount of patience. Wow, I almost fired back. Look here. <laughs> I do not want to hear any of that nonsense about some random victim of racism who happens to be classified as black. All of a sudden, we're supposed to have something in common just because you see me out on the street like, uh, whew, but I had to get myself together, calm down, and we proceeded. But I always hate that when the force teaming is huge. Um, the charm and niceness uh, concept I thought was great. Uh, as well Uh, and that falls kind of in the same thing where you have just random people who are seeming uh, like they want to be a bit too friendly a bit too smiley uh, with you that's one that I'm always apprehensive about as well and also just because generally speaking I am treated uh, with such curtness and rudeness in a system of white supremacy that someone that I don't know coming up to be and being all smiles giggles and politeness is a little odd uh, let's see. The refusal to hear no, I thought, was enormous. I have encountered that before at the yoga studio with that white woman when I asked her to leave me alone and she kept stalking me and I kept saying, stop talking to me. And she just continues. That is a huge one. I agree with, with uh, what Mr. Demery Ford said. No is a sentence to itself. You do not need to add anything. Uh, If it is some stranger or what have you and you've said no, no and move the feet. Keep walking. Do not stop. Nothing else needs to be said. Even if it's someone you are familiar with, if you had said no and they are continuing distance uh, because people are not respecting when you're using your words and people are ignoring that. That is huge. I appreciated that part immensely. Uh, Let's see. I already asked the question about uh, whether or not people and folks that are dialing in have felt as though they were in harm's way. Um, let's see. I will stop there. In fact, I'll read one more comment uh, from one of the folks who wrote in and then I'll double check and see if anyone has additional comments to share. Uh, different listener wrote in. He said, because the author never explains that the base of all interpretation of fear is the context of the reality of white supremacy racism, it is safe to assume based on intuition that safety to him is the maintenance of the status quo. At the 30th minute, Mr. De Becker wrote, justice is swell, but safety is survival. I think this is a clear expression of the collective and individual mind of the white supremacist racist. He just expressed that balance between people should be put aside for safety, maintenance of the system of white supremacy racism. To keep this in in the forefront of my mind as I hear the words of fear and safety over and over is best to correctly understand this racist suspect and all others. Again, uh, in my view, I think important uh, because, again, I think it's not I think it is a white man. And I've concluded that he is writing for a predominantly white audience would have to be for this to be a national uh, bestseller. When a system of racism, white supremacy, what would all of this fear? Why would whites have all of this fear in a system that they dominate? Any other folks have comments that they would like to share? Yes, I'm here. Mr. Demery Four. All 
yes, I <clears throat> forgot to mention, I thought it was uh, interesting that he would say that these criminals uh, was humane. You know, I guess somebody shot his, his uh, parents' eyes out, or, you know, and, and, and he told us to think of uh, the most horrible thing you could think of. And then, <clears throat> I guess, it's to show uh, some humanity uh, when they were uh, acting up over the uh, little hamster that died or, or something. I mean, I, I have a problem when, when they use animals to show humanity. I don't, somehow I don't see the correlation with that. And if, if somebody does, I appreciate they clear it up for me. I need my line. Sir. I cannot assist there at all uh, because I have pointed out the same thing uh, as being incorrect and another manifestation of white supremacy racism. We had the author of the book uh, on niggers and squirrels as a guest on this program. Uh, he wrote the book with that title specifically because he said he'd seen in Mississippi where his grandfather talked to him repeatedly uh, about seeing uh, Mississippi Mississippians being prosecuted uh, for mistreating squirrels more so than mistreating black people. Uh, he said he grew up hearing his grandfather say that over and over again. That's why he made that the title of his book. And I have read other authors, black authors, who have pointed out the same contradiction where they see whites treat dogs, turtles, squirrels, beavers, pelicans, crocodiles, anything, albino mutants, anything, albino dawn, uh, doves, anything, where they treat these critters way better than black people. So, yeah, I'm in complete uh, agreement there. And uh, if anybody else can explain that or if other folks had comments, they want to make sure they get in before we get to audio segment number two. Proceed. I remember um, when we did the uh, Richard Williams book, and he said um, he was young, he was collecting co-pilots with his friends, and um, the mayor's wife hit his friend. Uh, she was riding his bike. She got out the car and said, oh, it's a nigga. I thought I hit a door. She got back in the car. You know, they don't have that um, empathy for us at all. Um, the... Two people that came to mind when he mentioned the car accident was, um, I don't know, maybe it's my auntie Black, I saw it Randy, and I saw it Venus Williams. He didn't mention a name. Randy and Venus Williams. Because they were both involved in car accidents where I believe someone passed away as a result of the crash. Oh, I, I remember the one with uh, Venus Williams. I think that was more uh, recent, uh, the incident with uh, Venus Williams. Uh, any other, or actually, before we even get to other folks, I do just want to say really quick uh, as well. This text, he had the he had the incident where the killer shot the per I think he shot his parents, shot their eyes out. Uh, he had quite a few of these little gory incidents. The woman who tried to run over her uh, boyfriend, Mr. Fuller pointed that out. Having these types of books 
Uh, Kevin Dudden's The Wisdom of Psychopaths, this one. There are a lot of Netflix has all those stories on Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. Seems like they crank out a new one every uh, other week. And they all of them have uh, autobiographies. Jim Jones, they just keep cranking out, keep cranking out. Mr. Fuller pointed out there is something really bizarre about that where this becomes entertainment to just write and read and have what they call murder mysteries and romance novels that are all about killing and murdering oh and remember the one where he shot the guy's eyes out oh remember the silence of the lambs and oh that's about the ed gain case remember when he went to the cemetery and dug up all the bodies and cured the skin and used to wear them as clothing that is the system of white supremacy that is white culture unless i am in error i see that right in this book why this book would be so popular the same thing with wisdom of psychopaths to read that type of material yes we can try to learn same thing mr dudden said we can try and learn as much as we can but i mean wow this is the world in which you live white supremacy racism which mandates requires it's predictable that you're going to have all of this killing all of this bloodshed girlfriend trying to run over the boyfriend and all that's what you're going to have in a system of white supremacy, and I suspect whites know that very well. Any other folks have comments? Yeah, there's an old series, Gus, on um, HBO where they're talking to the serial killer. I think his name is Michael Kukunski, but he's called the Iceman. Uh, and I think, um, you know, he's going through all his murders. I mean, ice cold face, uh, no empathy, but he's telling the story like, oh, I couldn't wait to tell this story like this. And it was one of their biggest, um, it's one of the, the, the highest rated shows they've ever had on HBO. Michael McClendon to the ice cream. They went to prison and spoke to this guy. He was a Gambino hitman. That's entertainment in the system of racism, white supremacy, not with all the problems we have. HBO could have streaming series on how to solve problems. They want to talk about climate change, things to go about, how you can build your own solar, solar panels in your residence. They could have all kinds of things on. Now, the most popular co- we want. Tell us more about how OJ killed that white woman. Tell us more about how Ted Bundy killed a system of racism. White supremacy demands violence. Uh, We will pause here. We should have ample time after the second audio segment to continue. We're not even finished with chapter four. So technically he has other uh, techniques uh, that perpetrators use uh, to kind of get you to lower your suspicions, defenses. If anything, hopefully this book will encourage us to be more suspicious of whites. Uh, I think that's something that could definitely help us to solve the problem of racism, white supremacy. They seem to be very effective uh, at getting non-white people uh, to think that, oh, this white fellow, this white woman is all right. She's not like the rest of them, when frequently that's not the case. So, if anything, greater suspicion of racist man, racist woman. Pay attention to the cues that we get from them. We will get started now. Again, we're in Chapter 4, that kind of... uh, Breakpoint. Uh, the first sentence reads, I referred, to, I referred Kelly to impact, which I believe is the best self-defense course for women. This is about halfway through chapter four. Uh, context of white supremacy. This would be audio segment number two. I referred Kelly to impact, 
which I believe is the best self-defense course for women. She is now an instructor there, helping others to heed the signals. At Impact, which is available in most major cities, women have actual physical confrontations with male instructors who play assailants. The men wear heavily padded outfits that can withstand direct punches and kicks. Women learn not only physical defense tactics, but also about how to deal with strangers who make unwanted approaches. Most new impact students are very concerned that they must avoid making a man angry, reasoning that this could turn someone whose intent was favorable into someone dangerous. Be aware, however, that it is impossible in this context to transform an ordinary decent man into a rapist or killer. Thankfully, though, it's possible to transform yourself into a person who responds to the signals and is thus a less likely victim. I recently got a close look at several of the strategies outlined above. I was on a flight from Chicago to Los Angeles, seated next to a teenage girl who was traveling alone. A man in his 40s who'd been watching her from across the aisle took off the headphones he was wearing and said to her with party-like flair, These things just don't get loud enough for me. He then put his hand out toward her and said, I'm Billy. Though it may not be immediately apparent, his statement was actually a question, and the young girl responded with exactly the information Billy hoped for. She told him her full name. Then she put out her hand, which he held a little too long. In the conversation that ensued, he didn't directly ask for any information, but he certainly got lots of it. He said, I hate landing in a city and not knowing if anybody is meeting me. The girl answered his question by saying that she didn't know how she was getting from the airport to the house where she was staying. Billy asked another question. Friends can really let you down sometimes. The young girl responded by explaining, The people I'm staying with, thus not family, are expecting me on a later flight. Billy said, I love the independence of arriving in a city when nobody knows I'm coming. This was the virtual opposite of what he'd said a moment before about hating to arrive and not be met. He added, But you're probably not that independent. She quickly volunteered that she'd been traveling on her own since she was 13. You sound like a woman I know from Europe. More like a woman than a teenager, he said as he handed her his drink, scotch, which the flight attendant had just served him. You sound like you play by your own rules. I hoped she would decline to take the drink, and she did at first, but he persisted. Come on, you can do whatever you want. And she took a sip of his drink. I looked over at Billy, looked at his muscular build, at the old tattoo showing on the top of his wrist, and at his cheap jewelry. I noted that he was drinking alcohol on this morning flight and had no carry-on bag. I looked at his new cowboy boots, new denim pants, and leather jacket. I knew he'd recently been in jail. He responded to my knowing look assertively. How are you doing this morning, pal? Getting out of Chicago? I nodded. As Billy got up to go to the bathroom, he put one more piece of bait in his trap. Leaning close to the girl, he gave her a slow smile and said, Your eyes are awesome.
In a period of just a few minutes, I had watched Billy used force teaming. They both had nobody meeting them, he said. Too many details, the headphones and the woman he knows from Europe. Loan sharking, the drink offer. Charm, the compliment about the girl's eyes. And typecasting, you're probably not that independent. I had also seen him discount the girl's no when she declined the drink. As Billy walked away down the aisle, I asked the girl if I could talk to her for a moment, and she hesitantly said yes. It speaks to the power of predatory strategies that she was glad to talk to Billy, but a bit wary of the passenger, me, who asked permission to speak with her. He is going to offer you a ride from the airport, I told her, and he's not a good guy. I saw Billy again at baggage claim as he approached the girl. Though I couldn't hear them, the conversation was apparent. She was shaking her head and saying no, and he wasn't accepting it. She held firm, and he finally walked off with an angry gesture. Not the nice guy he'd been up to then. There was no movie on that flight, but Billy had let me watch a classic performance of an interview that by little more than the context, 40-year-old stranger and teenage girl alone, was high stakes. Remember, the nicest guy, the guy with no self-serving agenda whatsoever, the one who wants nothing from you, won't approach you at all. You're not comparing the man who approaches you to all men, the vast majority of whom have no sinister intent. Instead, you're comparing him to other men who make unsolicited approaches to women alone, or to other men who don't listen when you say no. In my firm, when we make complex high-stakes predictions, Part of the approach also involves comparison. Let's imagine we're predicting whether a former boyfriend might act out violently toward the woman he's stalking. We first seek to identify characteristics that separate him from the population as a whole. To do this, imagine a circle containing 240 million Americans. At the center are the few thousand men who kill those they stalk. Figuratively, Working from an outer ring of 240 million people, we eliminate all those who are the wrong gender, too young, too old, or otherwise disqualified. We then seek to determine if the man's behavior is most similar to those at the center of the circle. A prediction about safety is not, of course, merely statistical or demographic. If it were, a woman crossing a park alone one late afternoon could calculate risk like this. There are 200 people in the park. One hundred are children, so they cause no concern. Of the remaining hundred, all but twenty are part of couples. Five of those twenty are women, meaning concern would appropriately attach to about fifteen people she might encounter, men alone. But rather than acting just on these demographics, the woman's intuition will focus on the behavior of the fifteen and on the context of that behavior. Any man alone may get her attention for an instant. But among those, only the ones doing certain things will be moved closer to the center of the predictive circle. Men who look at her, show special interest in her, follow her, appear furtive or approach her, will be far closer to the center than those who walk by without apparent interest, or those playing with a dog, or those on a bicycle, or those asleep on the grass. Speaking of crossing a park alone, 
I often see women violating some of nature's basic safety rules. The woman who jogs along enjoying music through Walkman headphones has disabled the survival sense most likely to warn her about dangerous approaches, her hearing. To make matters worse, those wires leading up to her ears display her vulnerability for everyone to see. Another example is that while women wouldn't walk around blindfolded, of course, many do not use the full resources of their vision. They're reluctant to look squarely at strangers who concern them. Believing she's being followed, a woman might take just a tentative look, hoping to see if someone is visible in her peripheral vision. It's better to turn completely, take in everything, and look squarely at someone who concerns you. This not only gives you information, but it communicates to him that you are not a tentative, frightened victim in waiting. You are an animal of nature, fully endowed with hearing, sight, intellect, and dangerous defenses. You are not easy prey, so don't act like you are. Predictions of stranger-to-stranger crimes must usually be based on few details, but even the simplest street crime is preceded by a victim selection process that follows some protocol. More complicated crimes, such as those committed by the serial rapist and killer whom Kelly escaped from, require that a series of specific conditions be met. Some aspects of victim selection, being the right appearance or type, for example, are generally outside the victim's influence. But those that involve making oneself available to a criminal, such as accessibility, setting, and circumstance, all part of context, are determinable. In other words, you can influence them. Most of all, you can control your response to the test the interviewer applies. Will you engage in conversation with a stranger when you'd rather not? Can you be manipulated by guilt or by the feeling that you owe something to a person just because he offered assistance? Will you yield to someone's will simply because he wants you to, or will your resolve be strengthened when someone seeks to control your conduct? Most importantly, will you honor your intuition? Seeing the interview for what it is while it's happening doesn't mean that you view every unexpected encounter as if it is part of a crime, but it does mean that you react to the signals if and as they occur. Trust that what causes alarm probably should, because when it comes to danger, intuition is always right in at least two important ways. One, it is always in response to something. Two, it always has your best interest at heart. Having just said that intuition is always right, I can imagine some readers resisting, so I'll clarify. Intuition is always right in the ways I noted, but our interpretation of intuition is not always right. Clearly, not everything we predict will come to pass, but since intuition is always in response to something, Rather than making a fast effort to explain it away or deny the possible hazard, we are wiser and more true to nature if we make an effort to identify the hazard if it exists. If there's no hazard, we've lost nothing and have added a new distinction to our intuition, so that it might not sound the alarm again in the same situation. This process of adding new distinctions is one of the reasons it's difficult at first to sleep in a new house. Your intuition has not yet categorized all those little noises. 
On the first night, the clinking of the ice maker or the rumbling of the water heater might be an intruder. By the third night, your mind knows better and doesn't wake you. You might not think intuition is working while you sleep, but it is. A book salesman I know who often returns late at night from out-of-town trips. I can drive into the garage, open and close the back door, walk up the stairs, open the bedroom door, toss down my luggage, get undressed and get into bed, and my wife won't wake up. But if our four-year-old opens the door to his room in the middle of the night, my wife bolts out of bed in an instant. Intuition is always learning, and though it may occasionally send a signal that turns out to be less than urgent, everything it communicates to you is meaningful. Unlike worry, it will not waste your time. Intuition might send any of several messengers to get your attention, and because they differ according to urgency, it's good to know the ranking. The intuitive signal of the highest order, the one with the greatest urgency, is fear. Accordingly, it should always be listened to. More on that in chapter 15. The next level is apprehension, then suspicion, then hesitation, doubt, gut feelings, hunches, and curiosity. There are also nagging feelings, persistent thoughts, physical sensations, wonder, and anxiety. Generally speaking, these are less urgent. By thinking about these signals with an open mind when they occur, you'll learn how you communicate with yourself. There's another signal people rarely recognize, and that is humor. In one story that offers an excellent example, all the information was there, like a great unharvested crop left to dry in the sun. The receptionist was off that day, so Bob Taylor and the others at the California Forestry Association sorted through the mail, when they came upon the package. They looked it over and chatted about what to do with it. It was addressed to the former president of the association, and they debated whether to just forward it to him. When Gilbert Murray, the current president, arrived, they brought him in on their discussion. Murray said, let's open it. Taylor got up and cracked a joke. I'm going back to my office before the bomb goes off. He walked down the hall to his desk, and before he sat down, he heard the enormous explosion that killed his boss. Because of intuition, that bomb didn't kill Bob Taylor. All the information he needed was there and dismissed by the others, but not before Taylor's intuition sent a signal to everyone in the clearest language, I'm going back to my office before the bomb goes off. I've learned to listen to the jokes clients make when we are discussing some possible hazard. If, as I stand to leave the office of a corporate president, he says, I'll call you tomorrow if I haven't been shot, I sit back down to get more information. Humor, particularly dark humor, is a common way to communicate true concern without the risk of feeling silly afterward and without overtly showing fear. But how does this type of remark evolve? One doesn't consciously direct the mind to search all files for something funny to say. Were that the case, Bob Taylor might have looked at this package addressed to a man who'd resigned a year earlier and more cleverly said, it's probably a fruitcake that's been lost in the mail since Christmas, or any of thousands of comments, or he could have made no comment at all. 
but with this type of humor, an idea comes into consciousness that, in context, seems so outlandish as to be ridiculous. And that's precisely why it's funny. The point is, though, that the idea came into consciousness. Why? Because all the information was there. That package sent by the Unabomber to the California Forestry Association was very heavy. It was covered with tape, had too much postage, and aroused enough interest that morning that several people speculated on whether it might be a bomb. They had noted the Oakland firm named on the return address, and had they called directory assistance, they'd have found it to be fictitious. Still, it was opened. A few weeks earlier, advertising executive Thomas Mosier received such a package at his New Jersey home. Just before he opened it, he was curious enough to ask his wife if she was expecting a parcel. She said she was not. Mosier had asked a good question, but a moment later, he ignored the answer he'd sought. He was killed when he opened the package, also sent by the Unabomber. Postal Inspector Dan Mahalko I've heard many times that people would make a comment, this looks like a bomb, and still open it. That's one for the psychologists to answer. Perhaps they don't want to call the police and be embarrassed if it turns out to be nothing. The Unabomber himself has mocked some of the 23 people hurt by his bombs. Two years after being injured, Yale computer scientist David Galenter received a letter from the Unabomber. If you had any brains, you would have realized that there are a lot of people out there who resent the way techno-nerds like you are changing the world, and you wouldn't have been dumb enough to open an unexpected package from an unknown source. People with advanced degrees aren't as smart as they think they are. In fairness to the victims, I note that mail bombs are very rare and aren't the type of hazard one is normally concerned about. But the point is that these victims were concerned enough to comment on it. Anyway, people are just likely to make jokes about more common crimes before sacrificing themselves to some avoidable harm. While a group of employees at the Standard Gravure plant sat eating lunch, they heard sounds from outside. Some thought they were firecrackers, but one made a quip about an angry co-worker. That's eh, probably just West Becker coming back to finish us off. A moment later, it was indeed Joseph West Becker, who burst into the room, spraying bullets, one of which hit the man who'd made the joke. Listen to humor, particularly dark humor. It can be good for more than a laugh. The Messengers of Intuition Nagging feelings, persistent thoughts, humor, wonder, anxiety, curiosity, hunches, gut feelings, doubt, hesitation, suspicion, apprehension, fear. The first messenger from Kelly's intuition was apprehension. China Leonard got the unheeded message about her son's surgery through a strong, persistent thought. Michael Cantrell had nagging feelings about his partner's recklessness. Bob Taylor's survival signal about the bomb package came through dark humor. Robert Thompson got the loudest signal, fear, when he entered and then exited that convenience store. That's the same messenger a young woman named Nancy heeded as she sat in the passenger seat of a parked sports car. Her friend had left the car running when he got out to withdraw money from an ATM. 
Suddenly, and without knowing why, Nancy felt great fear. She felt in danger. But where from? To her credit, she didn't wait for an answer to that question. Her breathing stopped and her arms started. She scrambled to find the door locks, but it was too late. A man opened the driver's door, got in, put a gun against her stomach, and drove the car away, kidnapping Nancy. She hadn't seen the man, so why the fear signal? A tiny image in the side-view mirror on the opposite side of the car, a glimpse of a three-inch section of denim. That was her signal that a man in blue jeans was too close to the car and moving too fast. That was her accurately interpreted signal that he might imminently get into the car with sinister intent. All this was gleaned from a tiny patch of blue, meaningful only in context, which she had no time to figure out, but which her intuition already had figured out. If one had tried to convince Nancy to lock the car on the basis of just this fleeting blue image, she might have argued. But fear is far more persuasive than logic. Nancy survived her five-hour ordeal by following another intuition. She engaged the dangerous stranger in constant conversation. Inside her head, she heard the repeated word, calm, calm, calm. Outwardly, she acted as if she were speaking with a close friend. When her kidnapper ordered her out of the car behind a remote warehouse, miles from the city, Nancy felt he wouldn't shoot a person he had come to know. And she was right. I've discussed at length the warning signals that can help you avoid being a victim of violence. But even if you make excellent predictions, you might still find yourself in danger. Though I'm often asked for advice on how a person should respond to a robber or carjacker, for example, I can't offer a checklist of what to do for each type of hazard you could encounter, because cookie-cutter approaches are dangerous. Some people say about rape, for example, do not resist while others say, always resist. Neither strategy is right for all situations, but one strategy is, listen to your intuition. I don't know what might be best for you in some hazardous situation because I don't have all the information, but you will have all the information. Don't listen to the TV news checklist of what to do, or the magazine articles checklist of what to do, or the story about what your friend did. Listen to the wisdom that comes from having heard it all by listening to yourself. The stories in this chapter have been about dangers posed by strangers. But what about dangers that might come from those people we choose to bring into our lives as employees, employers, people we date, the people we marry? These relationships don't start with the first meeting. We meet many people we don't keep in our lives. Our relationships actually start with predictions. Predictions that determine literally the quality and course of our lives. So it's time to take a look at the quality of those predictions. Chapter 5 Imperfect Strangers A rock pile ceases to be a rock pile the moment a single man contemplates it, bearing within him the image of a cathedral. Antoine du Saint-Exupéry. See if you can imagine this. It's the year 2050, and predictions about people are perfect. 
They're made with a high-tech chemical test. You can accept a ride from a total stranger. You can ask a homeless person you've never seen before to watch your house while you're out of town. You can do this free of fear that they might harm you because predictions of intent and character are totally reliable. You're skimming along in your hovercraft one afternoon, taking your six-year-old daughter to the park, when you're paged to come to an urgent business meeting. You go to the park anyway and look around for some stranger with whom you can leave your daughter. There's a middle-aged woman sitting on a bench reading a book, and as you sit down next to her, she smiles. Using a device nearly everyone carries these days, you conduct an instant high-tech test on her, as she does on you, and you both pass with flying colors. Without hesitation, you ask if she'll watch your daughter for a few hours while you skim over to a meeting. She agrees. You exchange some information about how to contact each other, and off you go without any concern, because you've predicted to your satisfaction that this stranger is emotionally healthy, competent, drug-free, and trustworthy. The story sounds far-fetched, but in our time, we already make every single one of these predictions about babysitters. We just don't do it as quickly or as accurately. With present-day technology, how much time would you have to spend with a stranger before she wouldn't be a stranger anymore? How many of your low-tech tests would a babysitter have to pass before you'd trust her? We undertake this common yet very high-stakes prediction by reviewing an application and asking a few questions. But let's really look at this prediction. For starters, we wouldn't just interview a woman we met in a park. No, we'd want someone who was recommended by a person we know because we'd like to rely on predictions made by others. Our friend Kevin is so bright and honorable, we think, that if he endorses somebody, well, that person must be okay. What often happens, however, is that we attach Kevin's attributes to the person he recommended, and we don't listen to our own uncertainty. As we drive away from home, leaving our child behind with someone we met just a half hour ago, we feel the tug that says, you never really know about people. In our interview with a babysitter, we watch her attentively for any signs of... of what? Drug use? Well, that can be tested with great reliability. Tens of thousands of drug screen tests are done every week by employers who have less at stake than parents do when hiring a babysitter. Though most people believe the drug question is a critical one. Have you ever heard of a parent requiring a drug screen of a babysitter candidate or a breathalyzer test to see if she's been drinking? Most parents don't even contact all the babysitter's references. So it's no wonder they drive away feeling, you never really know about people. I'm not, by the way, suggesting drug tests or polygraphs for babysitters. But I am pointing out that we rarely bring even a tenth of the available resources to high-stakes predictions. For example, the question people really want answered by a prospective babysitter is, have you ever mistreated a child? but they never ask it. Why not? Because people feel that asking a question so direct is rude or ridiculous, since it wouldn't be answered truthfully by someone who had mistreated children. Ask the question anyway, and how it is answered will make you more comfortable or less comfortable with the applicant. Imagine you asked, Have you ever abused a child? And the applicant responded with, Define abuse. Or, what have you heard? 
It's entirely fair and appropriate to ask someone to whom you'll entrust your child to discuss the very issues you care about most. Good applicants will certainly understand, and bad applicants may reveal themselves. Having not sought any of the information he or she really wants to know, a parent might see the applicant stroke the family cat and think, she likes animals, that's a good sign. Or worse still, Tabby likes her, that's a good sign. People want so badly to get someone hired for a job that they spend more time qualifying a candidate than disqualifying a candidate. But this is one process in which it's better to look for the storm clouds than to look for the silver lining. Let's go back to 2050 for a moment. Not only do you have no hesitation about accepting a ride from a stranger, but there's a city-run transportation computer to facilitate precisely that. Rather than drive yourself from Los Angeles to San Diego, you enter your destination into the computer along with what time you want to leave, and it identifies several other people who are going from your area to San Diego at the same time. A perfect stranger will stop by your house and pick you up and you'll get back from San Diego the same way. That's what could happen if predictions were perfect. Since they're not, a 100,000 cars carry the passengers that 25,000 could carry just as well. Fear of each other and lack of confidence in our predictions makes any alternative seem impossible. But what if we had that transportation computer today? And in addition to identifying the people who are making the trip you want to make at the time you want to make it, it also provided some demographic information. You could ride to San Diego in an old van with two unemployed men in their 30s, or you could ride in a late model station wagon with a housewife and her one-year-old child. You'd likely conclude that the ride with a housewife and her baby would be safer, noisier perhaps, but safer. What else would you want to know about candidates for ride-alongs? Their criminal histories, driving histories, condition of their vehicles? The point is, if you could learn enough about each candidate, you would actually be comfortable relying upon your prediction, because that's exactly how strangers become people you trust anyway. You learn enough about them. They pass several of your tests, and suddenly they aren't strangers anymore. Some animals perceive danger chemically. Maybe even part of the way we do it is chemical, I don't know. But will the day really come when we'll be able to make predictions about people not by judging their appearance or clothing or smile or assurances, but by applying a chemical test? I believe the answer is yes, though I won't still be around to say I told you so. In the meantime, since we have to keep doing predictions the old-fashioned way, it's all the more important that we understand what's really going on. Context of white supremacy. Uh, so we did not get all the way to the end of chapter five. Uh, there's another one of those uh, breakpoints uh, in chapter five. Uh, so we'll pick up there next week, middle of chapter five, uh, number again. Folks would like to share 605-313-5555. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you have questions, thoughts, I'm double-checking as I'm looking through the chapters. There is no uh, footnote listening. There's an appendix uh, on 
gun safety, questions for your child's school. I'll make sure we go over those. Uh, preparing the mind for combat. Those are interesting appendixes for this book, but no footnotes. Anywho, uh, if folks who dialed in, if we have any folks that we missed totally, if you have comments or questions and you did not get to share at all, uh, during the first section where we exchanged views, you should get your hand up right now. Definitely do not wait until the last five minutes or so if you think you might have a comment or question to share on what we just heard. Dark humor. I don't think that term is in the uh, word guide, but wow, it should be dark humor. Almost sounds like they're talking about nigger jokes. Folks who dialed in, uh, hand, well, per- do it this way. Uh, Irie did not hear from you first time around. If you have uh, comments, questions to share, line should be open. Proceed. Oh, and since we didn't hear from you, when was the last time that you felt afraid that you might be harmed? Oh, shoot. Uh, good evening, everybody. Good evening, Gus. The last time I thought I was going to be harmed, um, the last ballot, like, true to lifetime was with an ex. Um, and Come to find out, he actually is um, he's an addict. And I didn't know that when we were together because I'm not an addict. I didn't recognize the sign. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, um, I ended up uh, leaving right away. Um, he escalated very quickly. Um, and I just was like, you know what, I, I got to go because he was showing, um, he was very, very um, erratic, not even irrational. Uh, and it was quite scary. Um, and I also remember him mentioning that he had hurt an animal um, not too long before that. So there's that, and that's why he's my ex. <laughs> but um, I wanted to say this was a good, a great suggestion because um, I remember, I think it was Draftomania that was mentioning how she had an issue with a roommate and somebody was watching her. When she came home, I think. So I think this is good um, for her and anybody else. It, it, it pays to be cognizant of people. Part of my personal codification is to look around. I know growing up, especially in the South, um, being that I was raised by my grandmother, she discouraged me looking around. And that was due to racism, white supremacy, because if white people were, you know, think you're eyeing them or think you're being nosy, it could lead to um, confrontation or conflict. But um, I make it my business to look around. I even try to, um, if I'm in one place for a long time and it's kind of small and I know that there's some through traffic, you know, like a library or a section of a library or something, I try to see if the same people are there and I try to recall, okay, I remember seeing somebody in this jacket or somebody with this hat, are they still here, you know, and um, that actually came in handy, um, situational awareness, when I went to pick up um, something from an outdoor store, and I was close to um, the firearm area, and I gauged how all the employees started, um, to use a metaphor, kind of swimming back to where I was, pretending like they were helping each other with items. And I knew they weren't. They just were trying to see if I was interested in a firearm or not. Um, And I'll add this as well. I started um, um, a group teaching from the compensatory code. 
and I also um, started a group for young girls. And actually, the first class that um, I wanted to teach was um, situational awareness. And it was, um, I was going to show a video that I found on YouTube. Um, I can't remember what channel, but uh, yeah, I was going to do that. And I, I ran into some students that I subbed before outside, and there was a car leaving, and a lady got into the car. You know, she exited. And I asked the two young ladies, the two young students, I said, do you remember what the person that got in the car that just left uh, looked like? And the youngest sister said, oh, I, I don't know. And the older sister, she was about 13. The younger sister was about maybe 10 or so. But the older sister was like, oh, yeah, it was a, a old white lady in a such and such sweater. I know because I waved to her. I said, and that was that was smart to do, actually to make it look like you're just being polite, but you're actually gauging um, the people around you. So I think it's a great book. I do notice the racism of, you know, the damsel in distress, especially, you know, the white damsels in distress and everything. Um, But given the system of racism, white supremacy, of course, they're the perfect victims. So um, I guess it's smart to assume most of the time he's going to be referencing white people. Otherwise, I think he would make a distinction as to, if they're uh, non-white with uh, specific words. And I will, in my turn, thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'll meet my line. Much obliged, Irie. Uh, kudos on starting your group uh, and the teachings from uh, Mr. Fuller as he's outlined the counter-racist code concept. Uh, outstanding job, not just uh, spectating, trying to share information with other victims of White supremacy, uh, glad to hear you had the uh, self-respect and were proactive enough to get yourself out of a potentially violent uh, arrangement ASAP. Very much needed, I'd say that again, is black self-respect. First time, last time, that's what Mr. Fuller says. First time, last time, if it looks like it's going towards first time, woo, let's call this quits before it gets there. A uh, person who dialed in, uh, last four digits, 6 2 Six zero. Did you have again? Everybody who participates. When was the last time that you were afraid, thought that you could be subjected to harm? Uh, hi guys. Um, this is Dr. Mania. I can't really talk because uh, I'm at the um, plantation, but I did want to call in real quick and just uh, let you know that I'm listening. And thanks to um, the other callers for. Um, uh, mentioning um, the situation that I, I had gone through, um, and that was um, some of the last times I was harmed. Um, uh, those two situations that she just said, and it's, it's really um, the, the, the roommate situation is still going on, but uh, the other situation, I haven't seen anything in regards to that. Took some notes, but like I said, I can't uh, discuss them. I really wish I could. Um, I had to work tonight. Um, um, I'm usually off on um, Thursday nights, but I had to work tonight. But um, I do have notes, and I will share them next week. Um, please remind me to um, share them next week. I took some detailed notes on my phone. Um, but I did. I just wanted to um, um, add my input. Um, one quick thing I could say that um, when he, I remember he mentioned something in regards to um, uh, a job, woman jogging in the park, and the first um, thing that came to mind was... Uh, uh, the Central Park Jogger and the Central Park Five. And that's all I um, really have to share at this moment. And thanks a lot. 
Much obliged. Uh, Draptomania remains safe on the plantation. Uh, she, she's one of the uh, listeners, Draptomania, who uh, recommended that we read this book. Uh, let's see. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, did you have commentary uh, to share? Line should be open. You're with us as well. Still not hearing on the line. We'll try again later. Uh, the other folks who dialed in uh, that we already uh, heard from, Mr. Demery for I think Red Nevada, uh, Thomas in New York, all the other folks uh, should be with us as well. Uh, if you all have additional comments, questions, line should be open. Proceed. Nothing stood out from second audio segment or no other comments. I'll get to a few of the notes that I took in the second portion. Uh, I agree. The white woman jogger central park five. And that, uh, that case happened in 1989. So this book was published less than 10 years after that case. Uh, certainly you see all of the hoopla around that case. Now with the central park five, there would have been even more then because it was much closer to when that event and all everything around it actually uh, transpired. So, uh, but he later on, uh, he said that speaking of crossing a park alone, I often see women violating some of nature's basic safety rules. The woman who jogs along enjoying music through Walkman headphones has disabled the survival sense most likely to warn her about dangerous approaches. Uh, her hearing, that's one that we've talked about on the program before. I think we've had listeners who have shared that they have been not out running at midnight uh, in the park or in the woods, uh, but they have been at their local grocery store and had headphones on listening to the cows or other constructive content, and they couldn't hear as well. You got the your earbuds in or whatever. And other racists came up and tried to hit them with the card and that sort of thing. We've talked about people being on the job and having either a headset on because they're on the phone a lot or they have their earbuds in because they're able to listen to music while they're at work. And other co-workers are coming up and jumping up behind them, trying to scare them, doing all these racist shenanigans, in my view. Uh, definitely, uh, I am definitely a big proponent of this strategy as well or just remembering uh, you want to try to hear things uh, we're in a system of white supremacy violence is encouraged especially if you're out and about if you're at home by yourself that's another thing uh, but once you're out uh, in public you want to be as mindful as possible about what is happening around you who is around you white people non-white people especially if you're in an environment that you're not fami uh, familiar with oh yeah if I'm going to have my earbuds on at all, maybe you have one on and take the other one off or you have the volume down. You're certainly not. I certainly would not encourage uh, any of those uh, cool 21st century noise canceling headphones, bows and all the rest. I would not encourage any of that. Uh, you want to be paying attention and hearing might be a signal. Someone might call you a nigger before they try and run you over with their vehicle or anything else to let you know. Whoops. In danger. Need to take defensive strategies immediately counter racist strategies immediately uh, let's see uh, 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 uh. Uh, the 
the situation that he gave about the whole business on the plane uh, where this white man, pedophile, really, I think he said he was in his 40s and it was a teenager uh, on the plane and he offers her a drink of alcohol immediately. I've said for years on this broadcast, one of the worst uh, combinations uh, in the universe, whites, alcohol, consistent. Say it at the end of every program. Sobriety would be best. Uh, we are in a system of white terrorism. I certainly would hope that no cows listener is accepting uh, an alcoholic beverage from a stranger, white or non-white, uh, is not accepting an alcoholic beverage. I mean, that immediately, whoa, this person is up to no good. I want to get away from this person immediately, even if you are of age. But giving a drink to a minor, like, my goodness, uh, get away from me and call the enforcement officials. He should be, you know, in greater confinement. Uh, but the author, Gavin DeBecker, looking at this guy and coming to the conclusion, this is a convict uh, that's on here. And he's trying to take advantage of this young girl uh, that if that's accurate. And I'll say again, these are all anecdotes. So he could have made this up. I will put that out there very early. White people lie all the time. We don't have any footnotes. Mr. DeBecker could have made up all of these incidents. That's it. We have the incident there uh, that he was able to pick up all these details. I think this is some uh, a guy who was a prisoner, probably a white man, the way he described him with his cowboy boots and all of that. Uh, this white guy, I suspect, uh, was probably a convict, just got out of prison and is here up to no good. I'm not sure what his financial situation is like if he's able to get out of prison and then hop on a plane. Maybe he got a cheap discounted ticket. Maybe some homies hooked him up uh, with airfare, got him some airflare miles. But wow, to be a white person, spend time in prison, get out and immediately hop on a plane to go do some time on the West Coast. That is not white fragility. That is not white privilege. That is white power. Next. <clears throat> he uh, has mentioned the Unabomber uh, regularly in the text. And back to what the caller who wrote in the people that he is mentioning other than his sly reference uh, to OJ Simpson mentioning Marsha Clark. Other than that, the people that he's mentioning are white uh, to continue to mention all of these white perpetrators, bombers, serial killers who are classified as white, although they are not being named. No one's racial classification being identified in a book that's written in the context of white supremacy. I see that as a problem. Uh, I think racial classifications are important and to have a white author writing and giving all of this information without these folks being classified specifically sticks out to me. Uh, let's see. And even the danger that white people represent that you would just can pile up all of these individuals, as I said, bombers, killers, uh, what are they? Cannibals. Uh, who are classified as white, but that is not being pointed out where we see the pattern of whites engaging in these behaviors. Uh, let's see next. I know Mr. Fuller when he, and uh, for people who don't have a, uh, the book, he has a listing uh, when he talks about intuition. I think, I think retired firefighter mentioned that last week, uh, nagging feelings, curiosity, hunches, gut feeling, all of that. I think in the system of racism, non-white people, uh, similar to Irie talking about how uh, when she was younger, uh, being told not to do all of that, don't look around. They, they had the term reckless eyeballing. We don't want black people looking like they're curious. We don't want you asking questions. We don't want you hesitating. Uh, frequently, black people could get in trouble for these types of things, asking questions, 
being suspicious of a white person, doubting a white person, hesitating when a white person tells you to do something or even being curious. We've had a number of black people where their curiosity is extinguished because it's a system of white supremacy. You don't ask questions. You don't explore. You do what you're told. Mr. Fuller said consistently, the creator sends signals sometimes just to one individual. It'll just be maybe to you specifically, nobody else on the, on the planet in the known universe, that that's just for you. And I think frequently we are encouraged to flagrantly ignore our intuition, to ignore that completely. And it is to our uh, downfall. I think that is a part of black self-respect. Listen, when you have those questions, when you have those doubts, when you have those suspicions, even about another non-white person, even about a black person, because I think that happens uh, as well. Listen, do not mute those feelings, thoughts, voices, whatever form they take. Do not ignore them. Interrogate them because it might be something there. I think that's you know one of the points that I do agree with in the text that he's making. Interrogate them because there might be something there. I think he said it explicitly. It shouldn't be too often that you're getting feelings of whoa, something seems off about this. I don't know. I don't generally go through the day getting that feeling every thirty seconds or so. So if you are getting that feeling, be mindful, ask questions, and try to figure out what the issue is before just rushing off. To, oh, I'm crazy. Oh, I'm you know just talking crazy or thinking crazy thoughts. Uh, let's see. I'm always, I guess I can stop there. That'll be my last one uh, before I check in with other folks. Uh, this is from chapter five. We only got uh, kind of a short distance into chapter five uh, where he talks about asking questions. This is in the context of if it's a parent and they're looking to hire uh, a babysitter, uh, you don't want to ask obvious questions. Ask questions. I'm a huge advocate of that. We talk about that on workplace racism and in general in dealing with racism, white supremacy, ask questions, things that come to mind. Even if you think it's a silly question, Mr. Fuller says that no such thing as a silly question, ask more questions. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes folks that are skilled master deceivers, sometimes they are great at being on the spot and be able to, to answer, answer questions and allay suspicion. However, if you ask enough questions, you ask the right questions and you pay attention to those responses, make sure they answer your question and don't just become evasive and, and get away from answering it completely. You can catch folks if you ask enough questions, you ask the correct questions and you pay attention to those answers. You can catch a lot of folks and keep yourself out of danger just by asking questions. I will pause there. Uh, any of the other folks who dialed in? Comments. Happy Heart. Uh, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, great um, comments, sir. Um, man, everything he's naming are things men use to pick up women, man. Small talk, use a little humor, make them feel important. You know, you know, he's messing the game up here. I don't know what's wrong with him. Just, um, to mention um, Marshall Clark, O.J. Simpson, of course. And, um, I caught that too. I think the jogger with the headphones was a direct reference to the Central Park Five. Um, both cases were white women in a position of power going after black men um, vigorously. You know, uh, even though Marsha Clark lost, um, the image was that, you know, but that's that fourth wave of feminism right there. Um, dark humor. Uh, I mean, what is dark humor? Uh, Kevin Hart, Eddie Murphy. 
you say that's dark humor. I don't know. I I just um uh, uh I have to think about that one. Um I, I man, I wouldn't call that type of humor dark humor, sensitive humor, or you know, I, I never thought of it that way. But um, interesting choice of words. So um, I think that um he said women don't um. Things that women don't do when they perceive a potential threat and uh, make direct eye contact and things like that. I find that white women do all of those things to black men all the time. You know, they make eye contact. They um, give you the the feeling like you know that they, they hey they they are aware of your presence. You know, it's not just clutching the pocketbook type of thing that they would do things. That they do every day. It's like they're very aware of us, you know. So this isn't, in my opinion, written for white women and how to deal with black men. I think that that's already um, pretty much preordained in their mind how they're going to deal with us. I think this was, um, you know, how white women can be, you know, probably persuaded by white men. You know, um, definitely I don't see this as a problem for white women with dealing with black. Wherever you're aware about prayer, across the street, when you're walking down the street, you know, stuff like that. And they do that all the time. And I'm like, man, why, why would you move to Harlem if you, you feel this way about black people? But, uh, you know, it's, it's just very interesting. They, they're they very aware of us. We're not going to be able to accept to them with some um, small talk, you know, dark humor. None of that's going to work for us. You know, they, they're, you know, get away from me, nigga, you know, real quick. Probably without the nigger. Um, uh, man, he said he said something about the um, people with the babysitter and they spend more time um, trying to get the person the job than answer the question. Not my experience as a black person. I don't think any black person trying to go babysit some white kids to have um, white people have any problem asking whatever questions they would want them to ask them. It just doesn't add up to me. Um, To me, once again, white people dealing with white people, not white people dealing with black people. They make us in um, employment very difficult. Um, They're not trying to help us get the job when we step into the interview. They're trying to wean us out. So it's it's a totally different situation. And um, I'll mute my line. Thank you, guys. Much obliged. Thomas in New York, uh, that is a great point uh, about the difference in employment scenarios. I, I agree like a million percent. I do not think that white people uh, struggle with coming up with correct, uh, suspicious questions, direct questions uh, to ask black people when they're going to be hired not to watch their children. I mean, it could be to hire a black person to clean the toilets uh, and it'll be, oh, man, have you ever used crack? Have you ever sold crack? Have you ever shot crack? Have you ever shot in the children? And they'll just keep right on that. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know. He answered that first one. Had to find somebody else to clean the toilet. Sorry. Going to get somebody else. It was competitive. I haven't seen that as well. Totally different. Uh, so, which is, again, why you got to keep in mind when a system of racism, white supremacy, as we're reading this book, this text, like many others that we have read, not even acknowledging that. Any other folks have comments that they wanted to get in before we uh, wrap up this week's session? <clears throat> yes, we Mr. Demery Ford? Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I mentioned something about <clears throat> the babysitter. It was interesting the way that he set that up. You know, like a person is in the park, he looks around, he sees a woman sitting there, and he goes off and leaves his daughter with this stranger. And then <clears throat> he says, you do it all the time with babysitters. But, you know, it's been a long time since I paid a babysitter, but uh, during the time that I was doing it, I mean, babysitting is quite expensive. And uh, it requires certification and all. It seems like if you're leaving your child with somebody without uh, <clears throat> child care certification or, you know, a business license, then, you know, you're just getting a teenage girl in the neighborhood to uh, to watch a kid. That sounds like somebody else said. That's, that's why people, because <clears throat> unless you, it's a relative or some close friend, uh, you wouldn't ordinarily just leave your kid with a stranger. And like I say, the cost of babysitting uh, will require you to do some type of research. Um, <clears throat> part in here, he said, uh, when he's talking about imperfect strangers, he said some animals perceive danger chemically, uh, maybe even part of the way we do chemically. But then that's kind of contradicting. He was already saying that the dog can't perceive any danger. He's feeling what you feel. But now, I guess it's a little different. Uh, but uh, one other thing. Uh, let me see if I find it. I wanted to mention Gus that uh, part, well, I guess it was last reading, the last part one, where it said that um, this author listens to the victims and a lot of times repeats details back to them that they said and didn't realize that they had said it. And I thought about Gus, the host, when you're interviewing these suspected racists and you key in on everything that they say and you repeat what they said, at that time you can see the deception. And it, we can see it also. And almost every time, well, every time, you know, uh, somebody's tripping up, they're saying uh, something that they really mean, and then when you bring it up to them, Oh, they didn't really mean that. So I'll leave my line on that, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. And most of the time with white people, I would say, if anything, if people have observed that when we've had white guests on the program and them saying things and myself and or other uh, callers uh, keying in on specific terms or phrases, sentences that they have said that maybe contradict things that they've said before. 
uh, or further reinforce points that we are making, even while they are disagreeing with us. Most of that is just doing exactly what he said in the book in terms of paying attention to cues that are given. Listen when people are speaking to you and do not ignore those voices. They might say a whole lot of nice things. Oh, yeah, it's not racism and I'm well-meaning. It's one of that. Mm-hmm. That's all great. You just keep using your brain computer. Use logic. That can go a long way. thought that was important as well about child care certainly being important with regards to child care but i was thinking uh certainly not all but lots of the black people that i've known throughout my life that has not been their method of child care having uh, a younger person in the neighborhood not saying it never happens but generally speaking no it do, it would seem that that's you know maybe white people are doing that but most of the black people that i know that has not been what they're doing a lot of times it's been uh other relatives and what have you uh, for the child care and also the pet references. I just go back to niggers and squirrels, whites treating dogs better than black people, having gelato for dogs and all the pet treat jerseys, clothes, whole wardrobes uh, for their fluffy pet hound, cat, beaver, skunk, whatever it is. Um, that them saying, oh, well, you know, the cat Toby here seemed to get a feeling about you. So I'll use that. I'm again going to go with whites. I'm not saying that there aren't black people who are just wacky uh, about dogs and all of that, uh, but that seems to be a much greater part of white culture uh, and thinking that this particular person, I'm going to make a decision about whether I hire or trust them because the dog liked or did not like them. Uh, Did any other folks have final comment question they wanted to get in before we wrap up this week's book study session? Yeah, um, may I add something? I heard both of you. Ari in uh, Louisiana will get you first. Okay, I'm going to make it really quick. Thank you for letting me um, proceed. Uh, I, uh, the importance of asking questions. I was in a car with a white, uh, in a car, in the car with a white male during a uh, ride share uh, job, and um, he said something to the degree that he was a lawyer. We were talking about careers or whatever, and I said, "Oh, what kind of lawyer are you? Probate, maritime." And then he goes, oh, um, well, I'm not really a lawyer. I, I'm really an investment, like a total turn from what he said. And if I hadn't asked, he would have continued to practice racism and, racism and be dishonest. So asking questions is fundamental. And as far as personal safety with headphones, I personally use headphones um, that are called bone conducting. They're made by Aftershocks, Trex, Titanium. Um, they cost a little bit of money between uh, $60 and $90, depending on where you buy them, but they are not earbuds. They, you hear the sound. There's stereo that goes into the ear canal, but the ver- reverberation relies on the tympanic bone to conduct the sound, so that way you can still have situational or, or ambient sounds come through. Thank you. Mm. Awesome. Definitely make sure whatever headphones you're using, if you don't have... Uh, that many coins to spend on headphones, just take one out, but make sure you are not compromising uh, your hearing uh, just to be able to be listening to some sounds if you're out in public. Uh, was that Thomas in New York? Sorry, sorry about my phone. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, from the reading so far, it seems like the book definitely written for white 
And uh, but we should, as black people, be putting ourselves in a position of the victim in these scenarios that he's using, and the white people are the predators, you know. Because we all have black people, it's not our experience, but like you were just saying, we don't go to Becky next door to babysit our kids. You know, we know Becky's mother, we're not doing like we. We, we have a case being not trusting other black people. All these tactics that they're using, we use every day against each other. There's no black people who's going to walk up to you and just start conversation. You're going to get away like it's, it's just not going to happen. It's, we know not to do that with each other, but we just have the problem of letting white people do this to us. And I think that we put the, ourselves in the victim part, you know, the, the woman, I guess the woman who's about to be preyed on, to see how white people kind of engage us and get us to team up with some of the things like that, I think that's really destructive. And I'm with my line. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, we are kind of still, this, this book is not nearly as long as James Lowen. Like, it took us a long time to get through that. This book is not that long, so we won't be on it uh, that far. We've not read that much, but we've, you know, maybe a quarter or so of the text where people can start to get an accurate assessment about who they think the audience for this book is, who is it written for, and what are the implications as we read. Uh, but keep that in mind with Thomas in New York just shared as we continue. Uh, we'll pick up next week. We'll be in Chapter 5, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, next Thursday. Uh, we should be here uh, tomorrow. That would be Friday evening, uh, same time, uh, work place racism i uh, already heard from red in nevada today about some of her experiences we will address that tomorrow what to do when whites are making comments inappropriate racist comments about your clothing much obliged to all the folks uh, for participating listening in reading is more important than watching television i could say that about 50 times i watched one episode of the new season of black mirror this week and was Absolutely. I don't even what would be the, the best word. Uh, it would have to be more intense than staggered. I watched one episode and was more intense than violated. I'd have to be something greater than that. I felt extraordinarily violated and I'm never watching any more Black Mirror again. Reading is more important than watching television. With that, <clears throat> sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Mr. DeBecker included that in the text this week. Uh, race soldiers, whites, trying to slip some alcohol in there. Do what they do. Get you to lower those defenses. Have a sip of this. It'll make you feel great. We do not need any of their poisons, narcotics. Let's do the best that we can to preserve our brain computers so that we can make phenomenal decisions and solve the problem immediately. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger, or driver. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. When you are in your vehicle, make sure you are not on your phone. If you are behind the wheel, racists will use anything to steal some of our time, maybe even steal our life, steal some of our coins, give out a few of those tickets. Also, you're on your phone while you're driving. Distracted driving, they call it. And you're not buckled in out here. Those are like $200 tickets uh, being on the phone while you're driving, not being buckled up. Lots and lots of coins for something so simple. 
creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.